Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. This episode is a re-release of two episodes originally posted in February of 2019. I know I've almost never done re-releases, and I also know that this is a somewhat recent choice. But as you may or may not know, Canada has been going through a difficult time the past few weeks, and it seemed to me that not addressing it somehow would be conspicuous, if not outright wrong, given that this is a history podcast. If you aren't Canadian, this may help to contextualize some shocking news you may eventually hear. And if you are Canadian, I think it's helpful to know the background to what you likely already know is happening. Beginning in 1876, Indigenous children in Canada were expected to attend boarding schools known as residential schools. And in 1894, it was made mandatory by law. These schools were designed to destroy Indigenous culture in Canada. Children as young as four were intentionally removed as far from their families as possible to discourage family visitation. Children were given the strap for speaking their own languages or practicing their own culture. The facilities were shoddy, leading to rampant disease and death. Child abuse was common. We don't know the death toll because children who died were often buried in unmarked graves, their families sometimes never receiving confirmation or closure. The program wound down by the 1980s, but the last residential school closed in 1997. Over a century of forcible removal of Indigenous children was successful in impacting Indigenous language and culture, leaving a wake of suicide, substance abuse, and intergenerational trauma. The testimony of survivors of these schools has always been clear about the existence of graves, but on May 28, 2021, the remains of 215 children were discovered on the grounds of a former residential school, bringing the issue to national attention. Since then, three more sites have been found, bringing the total to 1,148 graves found within the past month. The latest was this morning, so these numbers might be outdated by the time you listen to this. There were 139 official residential schools, with many more run by religious orders without government support. The expectation is that a full survey could result in the identification of thousands of graves. I've chosen to repost these episodes on the Red River Rebellion because they are as much about Canada's negotiation with Indigenous people as they are about the rebellions themselves. The colonization of these lands depended on the exploitation of indigenous people with whom settlers once had a reciprocal relationship, and knowing that Canada's existence is predicated on conscious attempts at assimilation is crucial to understanding this very painful news. I only speak about the schools themselves briefly in these episodes, but please understand that it's because, as horrifying as they are, 
They're a piece of a much larger system under the Indian Act that has not yet been fully dismantled in this country. Because this isn't a new episode, I'll be donating this month's revenue to the Legacy of Hope Foundation, which is an Indigenous-run charity focused on education and awareness of the history and legacy of the residential school system. Apologies to all expecting a new episode this month. This is what I am able to offer. Next month will be more fun, I promise. In 1885, Métis leader Louis Riel was tried and hung for treason by the government of Canada. His execution was highly unpopular at the time, and the controversy surrounding it has not diminished. There's a reason for that. It's not really just about the actions of one man. It's about the relationship between Canada and the indigenous peoples that inhabited this space long before Canada existed and continue to thrive under that same government. So let's ask the same question. Did Louis Riel deserve to die? Let's begin. Here on HI101 with Yumiko Hutchinruther. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about the Red River Rebellions, which is a series of uh, minor conflicts in the Canadian West back in the 1800s. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm really nervous about this topic. Are you? Yeah. Um, For two reasons. Number one, in Canada, having uh, opinions on... Canada's general treatment of indigenous peoples Mm -hmm. is kind of a political statement. And so that makes this probably the most political episode I've ever made. Yeah. It's not as though my politics have never been on display if you're looking (laughs) for them. I I don't really try and hide that stuff that much, but this one's pretty out there. Um, Fair enough. Which is a little exposing. Uh, But number two, because here in Canada, we don't learn that much about indigenous people and... Um, the relationship of uh, the Canadian government and uh, non-Indigenous Canadians or settler Canadians with the people who were here before all of us got here. Yeah. And that's actually kind of one of the reasons I chose this topic was because it it felt like something I should know more about than I do. I think a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. And like, it feels kind of embarrassing not to know more than I do, because I know it's like a topic that we briefly touched on in like middle school, social studies kind of thing, but like never anything in depth. Right. And, and at the risk of sounding like I'm wearing a tinfoil hat, I, I feel like a lot of that is intentional in a certain way. When you yeah. look at the way the uh, school curriculum is set up, a lot of times when we do touch on it, it's sort of in a grade school way. And in grade school, we tend not to touch on much more um, sensitive subjects. Uh, it tends to be a lot more, you know, hey, here's here's what longhouses looked like. Yep. And it, it very like uh, day-to-day living before uh uh, Colombian contact rather yeah. than necessarily our modern relationship with indigenous people here in Canada. Very kind of superficial information, yes. gloss over it. Yeah. Do you have any questions? No. Okay, perfect. <laughs> yeah. Which is very convenient because you're talking to nine-year-olds who really yeah. don't have uh, the the faculties to formulate the kind of questions that might actually, you know, really delve into that relationship as it stands today. Mm-hmm. So obviously this is a history podcast. We're not going to get into uh, modern day stuff, but there, there's some stuff I think it's worth touching on just a little bit before we got started. Um, one of the first things I wanted to actually do, uh, and this isn't something I've ever done on this podcast before, but given the uh, uh, given the subject matter, I thought might be appropriate. Um, we're in uh, the city of Waterloo in Ontario, and uh, I wanted to do a quick land acknowledgement. 
which is um, something that's getting a, a little bit more um, visibility, especially in public events and things like that. But it's important to uh, note. So here, uh, we're actually on the land of Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and neutral peoples, uh, part of what's known as the Haldeman Tract, guaranteed by the British to these peoples in 1784 after the American Revolution as compensation for loss of territory in northern New York State. And of the 950,000 acres promised to these peoples, uh, only 45,000, or about 5%, remains in control of the Six Nations that it was promised to by the British. Mm. And the reason these acknowledgments are becoming important is because you should be a little bit horrified when you hear that. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of messed up. And, I and didn't know that. That's uh, That's really kind of typical for the relationship between the Canadian government and Indigenous peoples in Canada. We've never really, in Canada, when I say we, I mean the Canadian government, we've never defeated First Nations in war. Mm -hmm. We've never uh, lawfully purchased land from Indigenous peoples. There have been land sales, but not in a um, not in a manner that would be recognized as as a proper you know ceding of territory from one nation to another. Right. So, for example, if you live on the Canada U.S. border and you just own a house there, you can't sell your house to an American citizen and call that part of the United States now. Right. Mm -hmm. It has to be done by the state. Likewise, native individuals have sold land in the past to the state of Canada, but entire nations have never actually sold that land. So that doesn't necessarily make it a legitimate land purchase. Right. Um, and here already, how I feel about our relationship to indigenous peoples is coming right up to the top. So that's fine. But again, a little nervous, I'll be honest. <laughs> um, First Nations land in Canada is unseated. That means that we've never actually taken it from them they've never actually given it to us and yet we act as though we have sovereignty over that land and it, it creates some really messy situations um it's it's really unfortunate the way that uh the general native population is treated in canada so i, I think looking at how we got there and we're going to be using the lens of the red river rebellions because it's such a it encapsulates this this uh, this relationship so well. But looking at how we got here is really important for understanding um, why maybe things need to change in the future, mm -hmm. and why it's important for uh, Canadian citizens, especially, to understand uh, what our relationship is to Indigenous peoples in this country. Today, there are about 634 different uh, Indigenous nations in Canada. There's about 1.5 million people who belong to one of those nations. Mm -hmm. It's a sizable population. Yeah. The agreements that we've made with all of these people in the past, and, and that's that's how our, our relationship with Indigenous people has progressed, is by making treaties and other arrangements with these people, have never really been properly honored. Sometimes they're done to the letter of the law, but often not to the spirit, is kind of how we've gotten around our obligations to these people. And um, it's, it's really made a bit of a, a mess of these relationships. So to really talk about the Red River Rebellions, we need to go back um, quite a bit further, actually right to um, the end of the, the episode I did with Gary on New France. Mm -hmm. um, when when France was de defeated by the British in uh, the Seven Years' War, or what Americans call the French and Indian War, there was a, uh, there was a treaty made in 1763 that essentially forbade, uh, if, by, by the British government, uh, forbidding uh, the settlement of any British uh, 
uh, colonists west of the Appalachian Mountains and the St. Lawrence Basin. So the Appalachian Mountains, that's pretty clear. It's, it's mm-hmm. actually pretty close to the East Coast in the United States. Yeah. And then the St. Lawrence Basin uh, includes the St. Lawrence River as well as the Great Lakes. So it's a pretty sizable amount of territory, but it's done that way to basically allow British settlers to remain in what would now be uh, southern Ontario. So at the at the time, Upper Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, but anything west of that was actually forbidden, and that proclamation has, for, for most of the story that we're going to be talking about, is actually still in effect. Oh, okay. Now, when the uh, when the American Revolution comes, not that long after, really, in 1776, um, this uh, this proclamation is broken in the United States mm-hmm. uh, when when America becomes a an independent colony or an independent country. Rather, uh, they don't exactly uphold this. They've been having, uh, you know, keeping an eye on expansion west for a very long time. Actually, it was one of the things that uh, really bothered them and and led to the revolution in the first place. Uh, First, they wanted to go as far west as the uh, Mississippi, and then they said everything west of the Mississippi was off limits for American Mm -hmm. settlers. And then, you know, and then, and then, and then uh, it continues. And I I mentioned earlier, uh, by the way, the Canadian relationship with uh, Indigenous peoples being a, a relationship between treaty peoples Specifically, because in the United States, a little it's a little bit different. They do have treaties, um, but also some of the uh, relationships they have there are proper military conquests, and some of them are uh, forced migrations and things like that. They have a much more uh, complicated uh, uh, arrangement there. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to pretend to know uh, that much about the American system. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even really know probably as much as I should about the Canadian system. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this, this topic is because I've been, oh, over the past several years, really been trying to fill that hole in my, in my, uh, knowledge. Yeah. But it's still really hard to feel like anything but an amateur, even more than other topics, because, mm-hmm. uh, we've had so much, uh, uh, of a gap in our formal uh, educations on this stuff. I've had to pretty yeah, much figure it out true. myself. Yeah. Um, so yeah, more, more than ever, please use this as a starting point and not a, not an authoritative guide on any of this <laughs> stuff. So that's the Royal Proclamation of 1763. Um, the other thing we really need to talk about is the nature of the fur trade going back quite a long ways and specifically how that relates to land claims in North America. Mm-hmm. In the 17th century, the fur trade was basically the entire reason for the existence of New France. Uh, Furs, specifically beaver pelts, were a massive fashion accessory in Europe. The like fur hats were all the rage for a very, very long time. (laughs) You could make a a lot of money trading these furs. Mm -hmm. And the Europeans actually more or less hunted the beaver to extinction in Europe over these furs. But North America had a lot of furs. Like Got a, a lot of beavers. Lot of furs. <laughs> and so the French uh, founded New France on the basis of this fur trade. But the British were trying to get in there as well. Obviously, it's a, it's a huge money-making proposition. The French fur trade, though, goes entirely through the St. Lawrence. And we talked about this a bunch again in that, in that New France episode. There were two French traders in uh, the mid-1600s, uh, Radisson and Grosselier, who learned from uh, some of their uh, Nehia uh, associates, Cree associates, that some of the best, biggest, like most abundant furs were actually 
uh, north and west of Lake Superior. Mm -hmm. And the French fur trade didn't really go any further than that. We should be clear as well on the nature of, of how that fur trade works exactly. It's usually... It's usually phrased as though there's these like French coureurs de bois um, who are, you know, basically running around hunting down beavers, piling them in their own canoes and sailing them back up the St. Lawrence. That's not true at all. There's a few thousand French people who are running the fur trade at this point. But the way that they do that is they bring uh, goods out into the woods and they create these relationships with native groups in the areas and basically say, hey, if you can bring me pelts, I will pay you X amount. Mm -hmm. And they create these huge trade networks where basically they say, I'll be back here this time next year. And however many pelts you have, I will pay you X per pelt. Right. And so this fur trade is done almost entirely by indigenous people in this region. But again, if you're only focusing on the uh, trade through the St. Lawrence and the St. Lawrence Basin, you're cutting out a large portion of land and a large number of native people who could be contributing to this trade. Yeah. Radisson and Gossier uh, scout up as far north as Hudson Bay. Uh, if you look at a map of North America, that's the giant bay that cuts into Canada. It's, it's huge. Mm -hmm. It's also very far north. But they find that, um, number one, the, the British have already found that they can get into Hudson Bay by sea which is really helpful. Mm -hmm. And number two, they discover that there are a massive number of rivers and lakes that feed into Hudson Bay, which makes it ideal for the fur trade, actually, because the easiest way to get through this territory always is by boat. It's faster and it's um, more direct every time. The trouble with all of this is that when you're running the fur trade with the French, you actually need like a license. You need to be like a licensed fur trader because they wanted hmm. it to, basically they wanted to control supply so it doesn't get out of hand. Right. Um, this is very much like a top-down organization. Uh, the New France was less a an independent colony and more like a branch of the French monarchy. Okay. And so it's very, it's very controlled. And this exploration is done... Uh, without the approval of the, uh, the the people running the fur trade. Oh, okay. And uh, the two men actually have their licenses uh, revoked for uh, trading out of the uh, allowed area. Hmm. And they go, okay, fine. This is dumb. And they, uh, <laughs> they go to Britain and they go, hey, we've got a really... Uh, lucrative proposition for all of you. <laughs> they shop around Britain for a while. Uh, they, they were actually arrested and fined for for uh, trading without licenses in 1659. Oh, wow. Once they get out, they go to Britain uh, and shop around for a couple of years until they find a sponsor in uh, Prince Rupert of the Rhine, who is the, the cousin of the king at the time, Charles II, who basically says, okay, yeah, I'd like to get rich off of uh, <laughs> uh, furs. This sounds great. And he sponsors the two men to the king uh, and a whole bunch of very wealthy British aristocrats create a corporation, which is not exactly the same as you would consider a corporation today, but it's it's very similar. You're talking about a, a combined business interest with uh, uh, multiple investors. Mm -hmm. um, at this time, though, you require like a royal proclamation to incorporate you. Um, and so the Hudson Bay Company, which is the oldest company in uh, in North America, is incorporated uh, based on this 
information from these two French fur traders. Hmm. Um, they, they send one test expedition out in uh, the late, late 1660s, comes back with boatfuls of fur, very successful. And in 1670, a royal charter is granted to the company, giving them monopoly over the entire region uh, of the Hudson Bay and all its tributes. So, any, so that's a pretty like sizable region. It's massive. Yeah. It's over a third of the size of Canada today. Basically, any river or lake that flows into the Hudson Bay, which is a lot, <laughs> yeah. uh, is by royal charter under the control of the Hudson Bay Company. So it's it's huge. It's mm-hmm. uh, uh, about 3.9 million square kilometers. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's massive. Yeah. Some of it cuts into modern day United States, but for the most part, it, it remains in, in sort of the Great Plains in, in Canada. It's th- this territory is named Rupert's Land after Prince Rupert, who sponsors all of this. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's actually made first governor of this territory. Now, all of this sounds a lot like a land claim. Yeah. What it actually is on paper is a corporate monopoly over trade for British subjects in this region. In other words, other British people are not allowed to conduct specifically fur trade business in Rupert's land. I see. Because here's the trouble. That land isn't owned by the British crown. Yeah. They've never made any land claims on it. And as much as massive amounts of literature even up to modern times and make it sound like that land is virtually untouched. There's a lot of people living there. They just don't happen to be British subjects. Mm -hmm. They're indigenous people. Uh, Largely, you're looking at Nahia, uh, Nihio, sorry, uh, Cree people and various uh, Anishinaabe people, which is just sort of a more of a linguistic group uh, than anything, but includes Cree, Algonquin, a number of other Ojibwe, for example. Mm -hmm. It's well inhabited. And these people are all more than willing to do uh, business with the British. Right. But the British aren't exactly coming in and settling. They're not allowed to. I remember that proclamation of yeah. 1763. Not only do the British crown not have land title, which by this time in history is becoming like a pretty important part of law, like who actually uh, claims the land, but also they've made government proclamations, royal proclamations, explicitly stating that they're not allowed to settle that land. Mm-hmm. So this is not British land. Yeah. Now, if you look at a map, it will be colored like British land, even yeah. in textbooks today. It's not. When we talk about the uh, Prince Rupert being governor of this land, it's kind of more helpful to think of that role as more like CEO rather than like a, a, a governor of a territory, as we would yeah, traditionally think that's of it. Fair, yeah. The language gets a little bit confusing there. And that's going to be a problem for people in our story as well as for us discussing it now. <laughs> it's, it's the person who is uh, making business decisions, who is granting uh, trade licenses, who is, you know, making decisions in terms of, you know, where are we putting trading posts? Where Mm. are we putting forts? uh, How are we allocating company resources in order to maximize profits? Yeah. It's not someone who is setting up court systems or, you know, establishing a... a... Strictly business. (laughs) Yeah, very very much so. And and because they're not allowed to settle there. So they are allowed to make or or construct uh, outposts, forts, things like that, because you need that as part of the business. Yeah. But they're also not allowed to settle there permanently other than like necessary staff basically yeah and for the most part the people who live in this region are fine with that uh in fact they welcome it to a certain extent because this is a massive economic opportunity for them they've basically plunked down in their backyard and taken something that for the most part indigenous people didn't 
really consider terribly valuable. Not that it wasn't valued at all, but it's it's inflated the value to a a ludicrous extent Mm -hmm. where an entire new industry has cropped up simply around uh, hunting beaver to sell to these Englishmen who are very willing to pay a lot of money for it. And I don't know why, but okay, why not take their money? Yeah, exactly. That being said, these people are very aware of the 1763 proclamation and they're very aware that this land belongs to them. They have, yeah. they're not feeling terribly threatened by the British at this point. One of the sort of unintended effects of the fur trade being as prevalent as it was in, in North America at this time is the genesis of the Métis people. Uh, I know you often say Métis. Uh, that's kind of, I think that's probably because you have more French than I do. Mm. Honestly, it's it's a more common like French-Canadian pronunciation. Right. Uh, either way, the it's a French word that kindly means uh, mixed or, or something to that extent. Mm-hmm. You'll sometimes see it translated more like half-breed or something along those lines. And it could be a little bit pejorative, but usually it was more of a matter-of-fact sort of classification. In general, for this topic, you know, there's going to be some language that I would prefer not to use, but sometimes yeah. in historical context, it's uh, uh, sort of necessary when quoting and et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, in any case, Métis isn't considered pejorative today. It's uh, it's quite embraced by the community, actually. Métis were people who had almost every time a European father and an indigenous mother. Women were often not allowed to come to North America, either by the British or the French. This was a strictly business proposition. No one was planning on really settling for a long time. Yeah. And there, it was kind of seen as though, like, there's no need for women to come. Why would yeah. they be doing fur trade things? This is the 17th century. Yeah. Um, they're not there to, like, establish any roots or families or anything like that. So. Exactly. Yeah. So now when New France gets established as an actual, like, viable colony a little bit later on, the king will like famously send 3,000 or so young French women to just marry the French men that are already there <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, in order to, you know, establish families and whatnot. But the, the British never really do that in Rupert's land. It's, again, strictly business, as we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. A, a pretty obvious side effect of this is that these men still kind of wanted to get married. Yep. <laughs> And since there were no European women around, they exclusively married uh, indigenous women. And this was actually fairly common. The the weddings were um, what's known as a la façon du pays, mm-hmm. which is uh, sort of in the in the manner of the country or, or in the uh, custom of the country. And they're very much like common law weddings. They would sometimes incorporate some Christian traditions, but were often done in the, the traditions of whichever nation that man happened to be uh, marrying into. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And and they were recognized to a certain extent, depending on who you talked to. But I mean, for these married couples, they were very much seen as a real relationship. There was no question there. Yeah. So like, were these marriages recognized in Europe as being an official marriage or was it only considered like legitimate in the context of like where they were? More the latter. Okay. Uh, And a lot of that is just a function of distance. Right. Um, But also it's a function of these men when they, when they married into one of these nations tended to participate possibly more than you would expect in the customs of that nation. They Mm -hmm. would usually move into uh, native settlements. They would uh, take up ceremonial traditions uh the child would usually be uh raised as indigenous almost exclusively a little bit later on you would see some encroachment of christian missionaries who are looking to like yeah convert 
everyone, not just the the children of these marriages, but uh, they especially targeted the children of these marriages, seeing them as um, potential Europeans uh, more than just potential uh, uh, Christians. So once they were married, was the expectation then that the family was going to stay on the lands or that once like the business side of things was accomplished that they would move back to Europe with their with their European husbands. The men in these arrangements would usually end up staying. Um, I'm sure there are cases of men deciding that this wasn't what they wanted and abandoning their families because yeah, there always is. Uh, (laughs) But uh, in in general, it was not considered unusual for these men to decide to stay permanently. Okay. At that point, point it's not really seen by either party as being a violation of that proclamation of 1763 right. because it's not a british uh, uh settlement it's a british british individual choosing to uh join one of these communities and that and that community accepting him yeah. uh, into that community yeah not that and again i don't want to I don't want to paint like a romantic picture of all of this and say that, you know, there's never any uh, cultural misunderstandings or no, other, no. other yeah. issues here, but um, it, it's not an uncommon story for that to be the case. The other thing is there are very practical considerations to these arrangements uh, from the business side of things. Mm-hmm. Men who were married to uh, indigenous women often had advantages in terms of being able to create new relationships for fur trade. The fact alone that he had a wife who could speak uh, probably multiple indigenous languages was a, a massive um, help to him. He would have her yeah. uh, help in these conversations, opening up new lines of trade. Yeah, that would open up a lot of networking opportunities he might not have had before. Exactly. What's more, a very common early, especially French genre of blunder in the fur trade is making two nations who are mortal enemies, both your ally, and then just kind of (laughs) expecting them to work together because you have no concept of these cultural differences. Yeah. It happened a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Again, I I point to that New France episode for for some context there. It, It happened quite often. Having a wife who could basically be like, hey, you know what? Maybe don't trade with those <laughs> this guys. This is not a good idea. <laughs> this is going to cause tensions. This is going to cause conflict. Is really helpful for just regional cohesion. Yeah. And it helped to really streamline these these supply lines, I guess you could say, uh, in, in that they could basically say, you know what? Go back to your trading post and have somebody else talk to them. That's fine. But maybe you shouldn't be talking to both us and them. Mm-hmm. That'll cause issues. And when things went south, I mean, they were very helpful in conflict resolution, being able to say, hey, you know, like defuse tensions uh, or or conflicts that these men had blundered into and had Mm -hmm. no idea how to get out of. They have that cultural understanding. Uh, They have that, um, you know, innate knowledge that comes with living in a society all of your life versus kind of waltzing your way in there as a European fur trader and just expecting everything to go fine. Yeah. So there's a lot of advantages then. Mm-hmm. Like inadvertently that well, come up through even, even just little things like having someone to, uh, you know, uh, help with basic domestic things like making you clothing that actually works for this climate yeah. or, uh, housekeeping or food. How, how do you, uh, you know, how do you keep from getting scurvy when you're in the middle of, uh, yeah. the, the great plains? Well, these people know because they've been living here thousands of years. Yeah. It's, it's really useful. And and again, it's it's also not just utilitarian. These are actual marriages. These are, these are functioning relationships. But men in these relationships tended to do a little bit better in business because they had a better understanding of where they were, which yeah, is... that makes a lot of sense. It's a self-evident thing, but yeah. it's also worth you know pointing out. Yeah, for sure. This, this fur trade runs on 
these relationships um, and not just on a personal level, but on a, on a social level as well. If you don't, if, if you aren't able to create these relationships with indigenous peoples, you're just not going to get furs that you can send back and you're not going to make money. Mm-hmm. It's just the long and short of it. The children of these relationships likewise were extremely uniquely equipped to deal with the fur trade. They grew up almost every single one of them completely bi- bilingual from birth, mm-hmm. which is a massive advantage uh, translating for both sides. Yeah, makes absolutely. you extremely valuable. Uh, makes you a really good employee for the Hudson Bay Company. They employed a lot of Métis children. Likewise, being bicultural uh, gives you all of those advantages uh, yourself that these European men had been depending on their partners for. Not that that in and of itself is an issue, but it makes you more valuable as an employee, as an individual, because you don't have to consult with somebody else to get this knowledge. You don't have to be relying yeah. on your wife to do all of this, uh, you know, cultural heavy lifting. Yeah, exactly. You know it yourself. So they, they became uh, really valued as, as Hudson Bay Company employees. And what's more, growing up as almost exclusively children of traders, these children tended to sort of internalize a culture of trade in a way that you might not if you only kind of interacted with uh, uh, European traders, you know, once or twice a year to drop off uh, pelts. Yeah. They almost always were raised near uh, Hudson Bay trading posts. So they had a lot of exposure, not only to um, both cultures, but also exposure to sort of the day-to-day workings of business. Mm -hmm. And over time... You know, this isn't a thing that you can point to, uh, you know, a, a moment in time where this happens. But over time, these children of um, uh, mixed relationships started kind of developing a little bit of a unique culture from both the, the, their European fathers and from the indigenous mothers that they uh, were largely growing up with. And Métis children began uh, marrying other Métis uh, as they became adults. And all of a sudden you get sort of this again over time this this unique and and somewhat separate culture yeah. and at a certain point in history uh, we start considering uh, the metis in in and especially in the area um sort of in in what is now the the province of manitoba very much a, a distinct uh, nation from uh, sort of their parent nations mm-hmm. and in canada they are considered a, a, an indigenous nation mm-hmm. uh, in fact a, a sizable number of of those 1.5 million canadians i referenced earlier uh consider themselves metis like one in three wow. um yeah, yeah it's it's quite sizable and you know to be to be clear when we're talking about especially metis i know this is a little off topic but there are a lot of people who will identify themselves as metis when they find out that somewhere in their heritage they have uh, an indigenous an indigenous ancestor mm-hmm. and that's really not the criteria here there it isn't just about ancestry here it's also about culture and yeah. that's a really important point about this like emergence of the metis people yeah um there is a distinct and unique culture there's even a distinct and unique language there uh in in the uh in the region we're talking about it's it's known as uh Michif. it's uh, a combination it starts out as like a, a creole of french and cree and it's really interesting, actually. It's it's um, I don't have time to get into it, but like the breakdown of like which words come from where and right. which structures come from where. So it's not like a unique dial. Uh, it's not like a unique dialect, but it's more like a like a blending of of two languages. Yes. 
Okay. Yeah, it's it's weird. You find out, you know, all verbs come from one language and all nouns come from another, and sentences are constructed as though they're uh, Cree, but oh, you wow. know, uh, but Cree doesn't have adjectives, so the adjectives all come from French, and like it's it's a really interesting thing, but it's very much its own thing. It's not as though, and and this is true of a lot of Creole languages. Just because you know one doesn't mean you can waltz into this language and just expect to know. It's not like an accent or something like that. Right. Uh, or even like a, a regionality. It's its own language. It just is very clearly uh, brought together from two different languages. And that's a product of, of that bicultural trading nature. Right. You mm. need to be able to speak both. But sometimes it's helpful to be able to speak something that is just between the people doing the negotiations. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Huh. Yeah, it happens once in a while when when cultures are blended that way. It's it's similar to, it, not quite the same, but it's similar to what you'll see with like Cajun French or even uh, a lot of dialects in in uh, the Caribbean. Right. Uh, you'll you'll hear a lot of English words in there, but it's definitely not English. Mm -hmm. This kind of culture of commerce, trade, business also lends itself to a new type of industry that kind of didn't exist before. Uh, this timing. And it's not as though the Métis created it on their own because no one else had thought of it. It's more that it emerged at around the same time. But that's commercial buffalo hunting. Oh, okay. I should be specific. Commercial bison hunting. There's no such thing as a buffalo in North <laughs> America. They are bison. But at this point in time, a lot of people are calling them buffalo, specifically for the creation of something called pemmican. And pemmican is a mix of buffalo meat and buffalo fat. Hmm. that was packed into these uh, bags really tightly. It's dried out, packed, sometimes along with like dried fruits and things like that. Okay. And you would have uh, like 90 to 100 pound sacks of pemmican. Holy. <laughs> and the composition of it kept it from rotting. So this is like really fancy beef jerky. I was going to say, it kind of sounds like beef jerky. A little bit. It's, it's not dried out in the same way. Um, it's almost... It kind of looks like falafel, actually, when you like <laughs> scoop it out, because it's like it's 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 dried, it's powdered, like it's it's crushed up, right. and then mixed with the fat and sometimes uh, fruits. This is useful for fur traders, especially um, French fur traders, because Hudson Bay Company would have food sailed in from England, which is extremely expensive and time consuming. Mm -hmm. Pemmican is made locally, and it keeps for ages you could go on pemmican for a long time right and so this food is useful for these people who are leaving trading posts for long periods of time and need food that they can rely on like sure you can hunt for uh fresh meat or you can uh, uh forage but like this is the prairies and if it's the winter like you're not finding yeah. a whole lot you yeah. need a reliable source of food or you're going to die out there yeah it's also more like time efficient as well if you don't have to oh of course worry about hunting and stuff and kind of putting yourself at risk that way yeah exactly so pemmican because becomes an, a very important part of the fur trade and the the commercial buffalo hunt in a lot of ways is is um, monopolized by metis people largely because they're kind of in the process of this like emergent culture they don't have like all the roles kind of figured out yet yeah and so this idea of kind of creating new roles on the back of this emergent industry um is really not a problem for them so you know i i know it's kind of hard to distinguish what would make a metis culture different from uh you know ojibwe culture or something like that mm. it's it's and it is hard for the first little while but you know, part of it is how these people see themselves in relation to both European and, and indigenous people around them. Part of it is 
the you know these these lifestyles that don't really exist in other nations that they've uh kind of incorporated as central pillars of of their own Mm -hmm. but uh yeah all of this kind of combines into a really unique phenomenon in that there's essentially a brand new indigenous culture indigenous nation that emerges in north america and it's weird because at first blush like there's there's this feeling uh certainly that i get and i know a lot of other people get that aboriginal culture in north america was kind of frozen at the moment where columbus shows up Mm -hmm. and that like anything that happens in indigenous culture should have already happened and then europeans happened to indigenous people and everything else was just sort of hanging on for the ride yeah and under like the tiniest bit of examination that's ridiculous like of course it continued to change and adapt Mm -hmm. they're living people like why why wouldn't it it continues to change and adapt today you get into weird stuff like um for example totem pole carving is less than 200 years old oh wow on the on the west coast i know that's a little bit outside of our 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 scope but like it's one of those things where it feels like that should be like centuries and centuries old and we've ruined it for them somehow no no no, that's that's i definitely thought that was a lot older than it is it started off in the 19th century but but it's it's those kind of misconceptions that like we've just sort of been acclimatized to assume about these people yeah, which is exactly. really unfair yeah um and and is is kind of guilt inducing and sort of anger inducing at the same time like i Very feel bad so. not for, uh, for not knowing it but me also <laughs> but also i'm really annoyed that nobody told me this yeah why did nobody tell me this stuff i should have learned about this this is a really important part of our culture uh, of our co- of our country so I think uh, we'll take a break here because I think that's enough background that we can begin to talk about one of the most formative events in uh, Métis culture, uh, which is known as the Pemmican War. Okay. So when we come back, we'll talk about that. Back on HI101 with Yumiko Hutchinruther. Hello. And we've been talking about... Uh, early Canadian and specifically British relations with indigenous people in Canada. Yeah. And it's a lot of background for some events that are going to be taking place between 1860 and 1885 or so. But I think it's really important stuff because there's a question at the end of this entire topic. It it won't be until the second, the second part, we won't be getting to it uh, right now. But that question is basically this. In 1885, the Canadian government executed Métis leader Louis Riel for treason. Mm -hmm. Was this warranted? And it's an important question in Canadian history. In fact, it's one of the few uh, places where the relationship between Indigenous peoples and the Canadian government actually gets covered a little bit in schools. Yeah. And even then, I don't think really all that well. because Not that much. I remember being given a very short kind of version of this story. Yeah, me too. And then talking about, hey, should they have done that? Yeah, like his name is very familiar, but like I couldn't tell you anything about him. And like even all the background stuff that we covered in the first section, a lot of that was new to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think if you look at it at sort of a a university or higher level, Louis Riel will uh, will often be talked about as one of the most examined figures in Canadian history. Yeah. But not until you get to that level. Yeah. I mean... I don't know about you, but our unit on the Red River Colony, um, which is what we're building up to here, I remember more about building models of Red River carts, which are hmm. two-wheeled carts that were drawn by oxen, like literally building little 
wood models of them. Right. I remember more about that than anything about the actual people living there or the conflict between yeah. uh, the Métis and other indigenous groups and uh, Canadian settlers. And yet we still talked about whether Louis Riel should have been executed or not. Yeah. And it's a weird disconnect. It's weird. Yeah. So in, in a way, that's what we're talking about on a very long scale over the over the course of you know, multiple hours over the two parts, should Louis Riel have been executed for treason or not? Mm -hmm. And all of this is preamble to it. All of this is necessary information towards making a, an informed decision on that question. Because again, it's, it's one of the most important questions in Canadian history. Yeah. Except we kind of don't treat it that way in all aspects. So let's get, let's get back to our story. Let's talk about we're, we're focusing in a little bit more on a region known as the the Red River uh, Valley. And that sounds like it's going to be like, oh, you know, you come over the hill and there's this little valley and it's, uh, <laughs> you know, a couple dozen houses or something. Yeah. The Red River extends from, well, it, it forms the modern day border between the states of North Dakota and Minnesota all the way up to Lake Winnipeg in Manitoba in Canada. It's quite long. That's pretty long. Yeah. And it was quite important to the fur trade because Lake Winnipeg is really, really big. It's long. It's it's almost half the length of the province of Manitoba. Mm -hmm. And remember, we talked about moving furs on water was the most efficient way to do that. If you continue up the Red River and through Lake Winnipeg, you are most of the way to the Hudson Bay. Uh, in fact, to the, to the largest port on Hudson Bay used by the company to transport furs out of North America. Right. So it's really crucial. It's very much the backbone of the fur trade. And so just by virtue of that sort of logistical importance, a lot of indigenous people settled along that that uh, that river. It was already a good place to settle. I mean, it had decent uh, agriculture. It was um, it had good access to the buffalo hunt. It was, you know, really it, it makes sense that people will be there. Mm -hmm. um, but with the addition of the fur trade on top of that, it concentrates people along that that region a little bit more yet. In 1774, a new fur trade company is established uh, known as the Northwest Company. And the interesting thing about the Northwest Company is that it's not technically British. It's based out of Montreal. It's a bunch of very wealthy, I don't know if you call them French Canadians at this point since Canada yeah. isn't a thing yet. I guess they're in lower Canada. It's fine. We'll call them French Canadians. <laughs> um, but but it's, it's actually more people of... Uh, uh, sort of Scottish uh, descent living in Montreal, um, although there's a there's a few French Canadians as well. They are looking at what the Hudson Bay Company is actually making money-wise. You look at the size of Rupert's Land and you go, oh my goodness, that company must be making so much money. Not really. Like, they weren't actually making that much money. There aren't that many people involved. Like, they have a couple of thousand employees. Yeah. They're making, uh, at one point, I think I saw the, the figure 150,000 pounds per year. Which uh, that that'll be coming up in in sort of eighteen the eighteen tens or so, which is maybe sixteen or seventeen million U.S. today per year. That's not okay. a big company. Yeah, that's actually a very small company. It's just they've got monopoly over trade in this massive area. Yeah, these guys in Montreal look at that all that territory. They also look at all the territory that's not technically covered by the Hudson Bay Basin further west and they go 
well, we can do fur trade out there and we can probably do it better than the Hudson Bay company is doing it right now because we're actually based in North America. Mm-hmm. We can work out of North America. We don't have to, you know, uh, uh, sail provisions in from Britain. We don't have to uh, pay import taxes, all of this other stuff that's going on uh, with, the, with the HBC. And so they found this company and it's surprisingly successful. It starts out, uh, starts out stripping the uh, Hudson Bay company in terms of profits fairly quickly. That being said, it's also often in conflict with the HBC there. It's really hard to really determine something like which things are in the Hudson Bay basin Mm -hmm. and which things aren't. And besides, even if you're not doing the actual trapping or trading in the basin, you still need to get the furs back to, well, to the, the Canadian colonies or eventually to Europe. And so yeah. you kind of have to travel through there, but then they get into this technicality of like, oh, well, we're not actually hunting them in this area. We're just trading them. And also there's only a couple thousand British people in this whole big territory. Yeah. Can you just trap there anyway? And no one's going to notice. And it's very fuzzy. Yeah. The whole thing's very fuzzy. But a lot of what they're doing is all the same things as the HBC were doing as well. They're setting up relationships with these various indigenous groups. They are uh, trading with these people. They are uh, intermarrying with them. They are um, often working with people who are working with both companies because that exclusivity clause that's a charter that's given to the HBC, that's only for British people. Yeah. If you're Ojibwe and two different companies are willing to buy furs from you. It doesn't apply to you. Sell it to both. Who cares? Yeah. All of this exists in kind of an uneasy equilibrium for some time. The Hudson Bay Company, it's weird, by the way, saying Hudson Bay Company yeah. all the way through every single time. The Hudson Bay Company still exists today. They go by the Bay. The Bay, yeah. We just call it the Bay. <laughs> they're, a, they're a low to mid-range department store, Basically, I guess. yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like a J.C. Penney's, sure, but in Canada. Yeah, they're still around. <laughs> they, I don't know. If you're looking for or a Macy's or something, if you're looking for some Ralph Lauren stuff, they will yeah. certainly carry it for Go you. Go to the Bay. So yeah, calling it by its full title is is kind of odd, but anyway, I guess I can't really call it the Bay. That doesn't work. <laughs> Where were we? All all of this was kind of just sort of existing in a in a in a balance until. The early 1800s, where we get one guy who's really going to change a lot of stuff for pretty much everybody involved. And I guarantee you've never heard of this dude because I had never heard of this dude. And I don't know of anyone who uh, is really all that familiar. Uh, His name was Thomas Douglas. He was the fifth Earl of Selkirk. Never heard of him. And it's, I don't blame you in the (laughs) least. I I don't know. Maybe if we had gone to school in Manitoba, we might. Uh, Yeah, that's, that's entirely possible. Yeah, it's possible. But that's, uh, yeah, I I had never heard of this dude. He was uh, obviously nobility. He's an earl. Yeah. Uh, He's also Scottish. And without getting too deep into it, there's a, there's, there's a number of things that happen to and in Scotland in the late 1700s that caused a, a sizable number of Scottish people to leave the country, largely for North America. And uh, Canada, obviously, is a is a, an attractive um, option because you're still able to remain in British territory without being, you know, directly north of England, which is probably the source of a lot of your issues. Yeah. Um, this is a period in history where just physical distance can actually solve a lot of problems. Oh, yeah. As a very wealthy Scotsman who was very 
concerned about the plight of these people. Selkirk, uh, we're just going to call him Selkirk from now on because that's usually what he's known as colloquially. Selkirk was really interested in making sure the people who wanted to leave Scotland were able to do so safely and uh, to, to set up a proper new life for themselves. He uh, had spent quite a bit of time in Canada, actually. He uh, liked Canada quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind that Canada at this point in time, I, I, I'm saying Canada, Canada at this point in time is a little bit of Southern Ontario and a little bit of Southern Quebec, yeah, uh, as well as a couple of other not yet incorporated uh, colonies like PEI or Prince Edward Island, sorry, uh, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland. He had actually already purchased quite a bit of land in PEI mm-hmm. and basically sold it to Scottish immigrants at a, at a fairly reasonable price to make sure that they were able to sort of form a, a Scottish colony almost, uh, certainly a Scottish community right. uh, in PEI. He had done the same in uh, Upper Canada, what's now uh, Ontario. It's actually, it was down near Windsor, actually, oh, okay. uh, quite close to the, the Detroit border. Mm-hmm. But he kept having to find these like little pockets of land yeah which he didn't particularly like uh he wanted quite a bit of land that he could give to only scottish people yeah he's very much like a scottish nationalist and he wanted places that he could uh that they could farm extensively and like very like really become self-sufficient yeah so like quality of the land was an important factor there mm-hmm. and and just amount yeah as well he did quite a bit of traveling to try and find the the right place for his people and ended up making his way to the the Red River Basin and just fell in love with it. Thought it was absolutely perfect. There was tons of land. It was fertile. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a little bit further north, which he kind of liked. It was, uh, you know, he liked the climate. He, he liked the quality of the soil, all of this stuff. Manitoba, you know, even today, but especially at that time, was incredibly fertile soil. Mm-hmm. Like really good for like wheat farming and things like that. And he, he it, this was really attractive to him. There's two major problems with wanting to settle here, though. Number one... It's already settled. These are sovereign territories. Yeah. There's there's another there's a number of uh, Anishinaabe people who are living in this area, as well as an emergent uh, Métis uh, population. Mm-hmm. They already live here. It's their land. Yep. <laughs> Problem number two. This is Rupert's land. Mm-hmm. It is for a British citizen controlled by the Hudson Bay Company. They have a, a monopoly on use of this land, which includes remember construction, which under the royal charter was limited to trade outposts forts etc when i say forts i mean less like a you know like a castle for warfare and more like a this is just an outpost that happens to have a wall around it yeah this is for trade purposes Uh, a couple of people might live there rather than just being kind of a seasonal thing yeah there's the 1763 proclamation still in effect here so there is a limited amount of legally allowed british activity in the area Mm -hmm. and he is a british citizen so Yeah, that, yeah, conflicts with that. (laughs) And the 1763 proclamation also limits any, even if that charter wasn't in place, limits any British citizens from settling in that area because because it's decidedly further west than the Appalachian Mountains, and it's decidedly further west than the St. Lawrence River Basin. It is west of of, of Lake Superior, and that's kind of the cutoff for that whole deal. Luckily... Selkirk was extremely wealthy, and that tends to make a lot of problems go away in our world. <laughs> Sad but true. He had named this uh, this territory Assiniboia, which was named after the Assiniboine people who lived in this area. Okay. And continue to live in this area. Like, it's not like a historical thing. Like, they were there. <laughs> we remember. <laughs> they, they, were, they were there, and he named it after them, but also wanted it. Like, it's, it's a weird little... That's odd. Yeah. It's like, hey, we're still here. <laughs> 
pretty much, but he wanted it so bad. And so here's how he went about dealing with his problems. Number one, Hudson Bay Company wouldn't allow him to use the land because they had a monopoly on it. No problem. He simply got a couple of people together and in 1811 purchased two thirds of uh, all Hudson Bay Company shares. (laughs) Cost him about 100,000 pounds. 12 million US today. Yeah. Again, sizable, but not... For a rich earl. Like. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got, he's got connections. He can make it work. He borrowed some money. He called in some favors, whatever. Yeah. So now he owns the Hudson Bay Company. Good start. Yep. And then he basically made his company sell him as a private individual the rights to develop that area. Hmm. In return for being allowed to develop it, he had to promise the company 200 men per year, basically pay the salaries of 200 men per year to the company and guarantee that any settlers in this region would not participate in the fur trade in any way, therefore, or thereby preventing a conflict of interest, which I find really interesting because there's already a massive conflict of interest oh, in yeah. the, the owner of the company forcing the, the company <laughs> to sell company holdings to the owner of the company as a private yeah, citizen. absolutely. It's... <laughs> we're gonna get just just fair warning we're gonna get very messy for a little bit here <laughs> the various indigenous groups who lived in this area objected mm-hmm. on very reasonable grounds namely the proclamation of 1763 yeah fair enough they basically said what are you doing you can't sell this land we own this land yeah it's not yours to sell <laughs> I, feel, I feel like they have a strong point here <laughs> And what's interesting is they not only object on their own sovereignty, which is already a valid objection, but on the objection that he himself as a British citizen is breaking British law via the proclamation. Yeah. It's a pretty strong case. Despite all of these objections, the first 128 Scottish settlers arrive in the Red River Valley in 1812. Uh, Keep in mind, this is the year that we, that that the Canadian colonies go to war with the United States. Yeah. The British government is busy. <laughs> Not only are they busy with the Americans in North America specifically, but this is also the height of the Napoleonic Wars in Europe. So they're kind of double busy. Timing. <laughs> this probably helps their case in terms of just no one paying attention. Again, other than yeah. the indigenous people here who are very upset about the whole thing. Yeah, of course. What's interesting is that they show up on the prairies of Canada to begin settling completely undeveloped territory or undeveloped for their purposes. At least they're, they're settling where there aren't any like established villages at the moment, fairly late in the year. Mm. And I feel like if anyone knows anything about Canadian prairie winters, like it's bad. Yep. It's bad and it's cold. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's not a fun experience. (laughs) They would have died without the assistance of local indigenous people who, despite all of these, like, very valid sovereign and legal issues that they had still did help these men not die, which is probably yeah more than some would do, honestly. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but they they defend they depended very heavily on uh, native aid in this first uh, this first winter. They also kind of started doing things like uh, you know there's there's fur trading posts in the area and they're moving these uh, families into fur trade posts to help them survive the winter, but these posts are designed to maybe house a couple dozen people at most on a very temporary basis. Yeah. And it puts strains on their food stocks and it kind of causes this domino effect of like everyone in the HPC not really having a great winter in terms of like yeah. just enough to eat. Yeah. It's it's messy. 
while they do kind of get going a little bit in the spring of 1813, they're still really worried about uh, food security mm-hmm. because it takes a while to get to a point where you're able to like self-sustain on food. And the fact that they set up uh, such a, an ambitious settlement project without really thinking through those logistics doesn't exactly speak highly to the organization of this whole thing. No, I feel like maybe they didn't really get what they were getting into here. It takes a while to, you know, for example, create fields yeah for farming it doesn't exactly happen overnight and if you're too far into the season what are you going to grow for the winter yeah it was a bad time of year to come over (laughs) well uh, yeah and and to to expect yourself to become self-reliant that first year is completely it's unrealistic yeah 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 luckily there is a pretty significant source of food in the area pemmican right trouble is the Métis didn't really want to just give these settlers pemmican out of the goodness of their heart. No. They had a business to run. They were selling them to the Northwest Company, right? Yeah. Which puts Selkirk in an interesting position because as founder of this colony, he's really worried about food security. And as now accidentally owner of the Hudson Bay Company, Mm -hmm. he's really worried about competition from the Northwest Company. They've been rivals all of this time. It's just that nobody's really done much about it because what are you going to do about it? This is unincorporated territory. There aren't really police to call up and just send over to arrest somebody. If you're ever to come into direct conflict with somebody and, you know, they decided to call in British authorities, they would side with the Hudson Bay Company because they have the charter. Mm-hmm. But again, like, number one, War of 1812. Number two, Napoleonic Wars. Yeah. Number three, a couple of thousand men throughout, you know, three million square kilometers of land. Uh, they don't see each other yeah like ever selkirk decides that he wants to crack down on the northwest company though he's bought all these shares he might as well make some money off of them i guess yeah (laughs) it's it's a weird position that he's in here i don't think he i don't know it's it's like he never really meant to run a company but now that he was running a company it just kind of (laughs) happened now that he was running a company he wanted to do it right yeah is the impression that i've gotten yeah all of this culminates in the the governor that he's put in place with the Red uh, the Red River Colony, uh, a guy named Miles M- uh, McDonnell McDonnell I'm not sure which one. He issues what's known as the Pemmican Proclamation on January eighth, eighteen fourteen, and this states that any pemmican produced in the region can't leave, can't be exported. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to sell it to anyone outside the region, and the intent behind this is twofold. Number one, to make sure that the settlers are fed. Number two, to cripple the Northwest Company, who, yeah. as we talked about earlier, depends quite heavily on pemmican uh, for their food supply when trading in this region. The Métis heard this proclamation and went, all right, and continued to trade <laughs> because what do they care? As far as they're concerned, this is a completely illegitimate colony. Yeah. They have they, they, they have no reason to feel bound by anything that this guy says. Oh, no, no. They're going to continue living their lives the way they've always lived them. And besides, I mean, we've already seen that they're not really willing to starve anyone out that badly. And if they weren't willing to do that for 100 men that had just essentially invaded their territory uh, and attempted to annex part of it, they're probably not going to do it to the men who they've had a productive and profitable uh, relationship with for decades. So they continued trading pemmican with them. (laughs) Yeah. This kind of blows up in 1814 when... The Hudson Bay Company starts sending out armed parties to prevent pemmican from leaving the territory. 
they would do their best to find out where these transactions were happening. And if they weren't able to ambush it before the pemmican was sold uh, and take it from the Métis traders, they would afterwards go and basically rob the Northwest uh, company trading parties, take the pemmican from them and be Mm. on their way. So there's these little kind of flashes of violence that start breaking out because obviously these Northwest men are going to try and defend the food source that they depend on throughout the year. And it starts getting really messy. The Hudson Bay company... And here's the thing. It's the Hudson Bay Company who's actually sending these raiding parties, Mm -hmm. but they're doing so on behalf of the Red River Colony, which has been set up in Assiniboia. And so there's this real blurred line between settlers and the company because they're kind of both administrated by the same man. Yeah. And it's confusing and it's messy. And it was for them at the same time as well, because... You know, sometimes you have raiding parties of colonists going out. Sometimes you have employees of the Hudson Bay Company going out Mm -hmm. trying to enforce this law made by a colony that mm, has questionable uh, legal authority in the first place. Yeah. And so the Northwest Company is defending themselves, but also they know that they can't really go to the British uh, for legal aid because they don't have the charter to be in the area. That's true. Oh, that's really messy. Yeah. There's been this equilibrium for like... 50 years almost 40 years at this point that is just falling apart now and it's all because of these settlers having a rough first year or so yeah that really like spun out of control fast yeah absolutely the metis who were understandably pretty upset about the existence of the red river colony no (laughs) used all of this confusion and uh chaos as an opportunity to attack the settlements Directly, not just these raiding parties that were going out, mm-hmm. which, again, is, you know, on one hand, yeah, you're, you're, you're attacking people's homes kind of as, as raiding parties. And they're using very, like, similar uh, war tactics to what you would see in uh, the War of 1812 from uh, what you see from, like, Tecumseh and, and, and people like that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, one that, that comes up a lot is the whole, what they would do is they'd get a bunch of guys on horseback and ride them out of the woods near the colony and ride back into the woods. And then they would circle around. And it was just a giant circle if you were looking from above. But if you were looking at the woods from the colony, it would look like there was just like an unbroken, continuous line of braves coming out of these trees. That's clever. And they would just ride for hours. It was an incredibly effective uh, 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 intimidation tactic. Yeah. So the Métis were using the same sort of uh, uh, tactic. Um, And I keep talking about the Métis, again, largely because we're going to ultimately be talking about Louis Riel and the Mm -hmm. Métis people shape a lot of what happens in the Red River area. But again, there are Ojibwe people, um, Nahia people, Nahia I'm so bad at that one. I wish I was better. <laughs> it's the proper name for Cree, also involved in all of these raids. Uh, mm-hmm. So they're, they're very much uh, working together. A lot of conflicts in North America around this time and earlier, you would see indigenous people kind of working on both sides. There really aren't any indigenous people on the side of the Red River colonists in this one. Yeah. And that's notable because up until now, the way that the relationship has worked between European settlers and uh, indigenous nations has been very much, I'd love to say egalitarian, even though that's not quite true, but they were certainly dealing with them as sovereign nations. Yeah. You were getting a, a war treaty with this people 
and it would very much resemble the type of defense treaty you would make with another country if it mm. was a European country. Yeah. That isn't really the case here. There's kind of a line that's been crossed. This time is different. The Hudson Bay Company starts aggressively asserting the charter. They're saying the you know they're attacking uh, Northwest trading parties, even if they don't have any pemmican, based on the fact that they are in Rupert's land trading furs. And so they're really escalating things at this point. Partially because the indigenous nations in the area are at least nominally allied with the Northwest Company. And mm-hmm. because they've been attacking the settlers, the Northwest Company, who's allied with the settlers, is attacking the Northwest Company, right. who they see as being allied with the indigenous people. And that alliance is very much one of convenience. I mean, yeah. there is the business relationship, obviously, but there isn't necessarily always a level of coordination between the Northwest Company and, and indigenous nations uh, that you would expect from like true allies. It's more yeah. like, well, this is a this is an opportunity we can take advantage of. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. Selkirk, at the end of the War of 1812, manages to get the help of some British troops. It's not a lot. Like, I mean, we're... It's a tricky one because we're calling it the Pemmican War and you automatically kind of fill your head with images of like thousands upon thousands on each side. We're talking skirmishes of like a couple dozen people maybe. Yeah, that's pretty small. <laughs> it's, it's really small. There's not a lot of people to be involved in this. Yeah. The the British send over a couple of dozen troops. It's, it's really, really small. Northwest Company raises more uh, troops. In this era, the Northwest Company and the Hudson Bay Company are spending more money on trying to outcompete each other than they're actually making on any sort of fur trade. Oh. Part of that is the level of escalation. Part of it is just that furs aren't really that popular anymore. It's not as lucrative as it used to be. Mm-hmm. But like, it, it very much goes to show the level of escalation. So now you have British troops proper, like the British government involved as like a fifth party, I guess we're up to now. <laughs> And that's even just lumping all indigenous nations together, which is uh, a little reductionist, but they were pretty closely allied at this point. The Métis use the the chaos as an op- opportunity to burn the main fort in the Red River Valley uh, to the ground. It's known as Fort Douglas in 1815. And in the process of doing so, managed to capture uh, 150 of the settlers from the the region, including the governor. A governor. Wow. Still not sure if it's McDonald or McDonnell. Eh, we'll say both. <laughs> After that, you know, the the colony tries a couple of times to rebuild, but it was a pretty big blow. This all kind of culminates in what's known as the Battle of Seven Oaks. Again, it sounds huge. It's a couple of dozen people. It's not that big a deal. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get into every blow by blow of this whole conflict. I think we got kind of the the main gist of it. Battle of Seven Oaks uh, results in a settler defeat. Selkirk, seeing that the colony is kind of failing and obviously feeling very personally invested, yeah, emotionally and financially, I guess, in, in this whole project, <laughs> uh, decides to actually come himself. And he brings what could be um, considered a, a mercenary force. It, it's British forces, but he's basically paying them to come with him to this colony mm-hmm. uh, to help defend it. And with the, the arrival of these forces at, at this point, uh, I don't have a specific number listed, but I, I believe it was a couple hundred uh, British regulars because, you know, both the Napoleonic Wars and the War of yeah. 1812 are over, over now and they can actually spare some troops. Yeah. Um, with the arrival of these, further engagements are more or less over, even though the vast majority of the war was a series of settler defeats. It kind of establishes a military presence there that is going to... In, in certain ways, legitimize the existence of this settlement 
in the eyes of the British because at that point there's really no uh, further opportunity for indigenous nations to realistically uh, engage in in battle with them and mm-hmm. expect to win. Yeah, British regulars in this era are, you know, I, I don't want to make them sound you know supernatural or anything like that, but they are they are some of the best in the world for sure. Yeah. However. Selkirk is worried about the future existence of this colony and decides that maybe leaving things unfinished with the the nations that exist in this area is maybe not the most um, forward-looking strategy (laughs) and calls a meeting. And there's a number of indigenous leaders that that attend this meeting uh, in 1818, or sorry, 1817. Mache Wasab from the Cree, Oshki Duad from the uh, the Ojibwe, all like really important leaders in their nations in this mm-hmm. area, sit down with Selkirk and they they talk about the future of this colony. And what is decided on is that Selkirk acknowledges the ownership of the Red River Valley belonging to the indigenous peoples of this area. And they agree to allow the settlers to remain, specifically in a two-mile-wide strip on either side of the river, as well as a a major tributary of the river, Mm -hmm. in exchange for a yearly payment uh, made in the form of tobacco to uh, the indigenous nations. Mm. I see a lot of literature about this kind of talk about it as though somehow at this point the Red River Colony becomes a legitimate British colony in the area. And it kind of irks me every time because yeah. this isn't a land purchase. That's rent. Yeah. That's literally, that's, that is a lease on a, on a rent agreement. Yeah. And it explicitly acknowledges that, that ownership. And that's how they get around the 1763 treaty is by not making a British colony in this area. The Selkirk Treaty is really important in that it's one of the first agreements in this region in the in the plains region of Canada and it's also important in that it acknowledges very explicitly the ownership the sovereignty of this land mm-hmm. being in the hands of the indigenous nations that exist there yeah it's considered a landmark agreement for for a number of reasons when you're looking at sort of indigenous history in in Canada. Mm-hmm. And what I find most interesting about it is even even up until this point, even after there's been this weird intrusion or attempted annexation, even after there's been uh, confl- a conflict, even though all of this stuff happened, uh, British regulars are brought in like it's this is this is supposed to be like textbook colonialism right here. Yeah. Even after all of that, there's a treaty that's made on very like egalitarian terms. The Selkirk Treaty won't last all that long. It'll maybe 60 years or so, but for the length of its uh, existence, it's going to be honored by the Scottish settlers that are are living there. The, the people of the Red River Valley will be paid the rent that's due to them. Mm-hmm. This sounds like it should be a point where we're like, okay, and everything is great from now <laughs> on. I, I mean, even, even during all of this, uh, this stuff happening, things are things are sort of happening above the control of the indigenous people without their say in 1818 for example in the aftermath of the war of 1812 the british government sits down with the us government and hashes out sort of a you know it's really com- common after a war to sort of sit down and, and talk terms yeah. and a lot of times it's uh, it involves uh, uh, territory negotiations mm-hmm. and the united states at this point in time is hungry for land yeah. this is like 
peak manifest destiny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they they want to go as far north as they possibly can in the plains. They don't care about uh, Proclamation of 1763. Yeah. And this time period is where the 49th parallel is set as the border between canada and the united oh, states okay um if you look at a, a map between the two countries there's just like a very straight line uh, yeah. west of the um uh, the great lakes that's decided on in 1818 and that line cuts directly through the red river mm. which means that half of the well it's, it's a little bit less than half but a, a sizable chunk of the red river valley has just become united states territory right um that all belongs to the u.s after they made the the louisiana purchase so all of those people are no longer bound by this selkirk ter- uh, treaty uh all of those people are no longer protected by the proclamation of 1763 it's a it's a pretty big deal for these yeah. people, and the British kind of just hand waved that away. There's this massive investigation in the in the aftermath of the Pemmican War. Selkirk is actually found to be the instigator uh, because of his sort of aggressive moves towards uh, escalating the conflict, towards mm-hmm. uh, cutting off food supplies to the Northwest Company, all of that. And he ends up spending the rest of his life, which is not that much longer, honestly, uh, <laughs> trying to defend himself in court. Uh, he actually died in 1820, still with charges pending. Mm. And in 1821, in light of all of this conflict, uh, the British government pressures the Northwest Company to sell its shares to the Hudson Bay Company to sort of remove the possibility of this happening in the future right. and the two merge that kind of aggressive expansion that we talked about in the u.s it's followed up by like the oregon trail going to uh the pacific northwest mm-hmm. uh you know kind of famously from about the late 1820s to the 1860s and britain gets really worried about northward expansion of territories that they don't have any control over yeah i mean even rupert's land they're kind of acting like they have control over it but they, they don't. just yeah well they just sold the border of it to the united states yeah exactly even though it's not really theirs <laughs> um the california gold rush takes place mm-hmm. uh, in uh, 1849 and the united states is very much looking at the entire red river valley going like hey this actually looks really great but you know as so many people have before yeah and britain gets really worried about actually holding it there's other stuff going on with canada you know i i don't know how much you remember talking about canadian confederation in school and like the reasons behind it i find that often it's kind of presented as you know the times seem to be right and then you know there's the charlottetown conference where a bunch of the charlottetown conference is like fathers of confederation get together and talk about becoming an independent country exactly they go to britain and propose it to queen victoria and she says yes and now it's a country and it's very like (laughs) sterile yeah and it's not really talked about in the context of, for example, this expansionistic nature of, of uh, the United States mm-hmm. or the fact that the War of 1812 just happened 50 years before. And what Britain learned from that is, you know, hey, this is a really small colony that doesn't really make us a lot of money, but it's really costly to defend it militarily. Yeah. And maybe it's not worth actually defending. Yeah, there's a lot of context that gets lost there. There's also the fact that, hey... Quebec is there, and that's really complicated and messy. Yeah, we've talked uh, on other shows about sort of the uh, concessions that were made to Quebec in order to sort of placate the people who were conquered in in 1763. Uh, you know, allowing them freedom of religion and, and and things like that that make Canada kind of a nightmare to administrate for the British government. Mm-hmm. In 1837 and 1838, there's a series of rebellions in uh, Upper and Lower Canada. There's all this stuff that's going on that's making it really difficult for Britain to hang on to Canada. 
And then in 1857, as you and I have talked about before, uh, the East India Company is dissolved and the British government takes direct control yeah, that's right. over India, which takes a massive amount of uh, resources, except that India makes Britain a lot of money. Yeah. And Canada doesn't. <laughs> so when these Fathers of Confederation go to Britain in 1867 and say, hey, we'd like to become an independent colony... I think there's a little bit of a sigh of relief from the British government. Yeah, makes sense. They don't... We're, we're bleeding money a little bit. Yeah. Furs are not popular anymore, and we don't offer a lot of other stuff. Yeah. We're a liability. The United States is right there. We don't know when they're going to be... When they're going to come after us again. Also, uh, and, and I don't think a lot of people realize this, in the American Civil War between 1860 and 1865, the British Empire unofficially supports the south hmm. they're not really happy with america in general and they saw supporting the south as an opportunity to destabilize them as a power in the region right it's not necessarily an ideological support so much as a practical uh, uh political support yeah um but when the north wins in 1865 they're not happy with the british <laughs> empire kind of understandably yeah and if you're britain in 1867 the war has just ended two years before, and Canada is going, hey, we'd like to go it alone. <laughs> You're yeah. thinking to yourself, oh, good, because I've been worried that we're going to have to fight another war in North America, yeah. just like 50 years ago, because they're mad about all of this. Yeah, makes sense. It's, yeah, the, the timing, I, I don't think Britain could have gotten rid of us fast enough at that point. Confederation begins with Ontario, Quebec, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick. They really wanted British Columbia as well, which is actually a relatively new territory at that time for britain mm -hmm. um it had only been established for something like 40 years as a uh, like an actual colony right um and that was a messy thing because it's technically west of the 1763 proclamation areas but then again the kind of existence of the whole uh northwest area the whole cascadia area was really kind of tricky at that point the borders between what was owned by the the united states and britain both were laying claim to similar areas, like it was all contested. Huge mess that we don't really have a chance to get into right now. But one of BC's main requirements for joining Confederation, which Canada wanted, number one, to do the whole C to C thing, just like the United States, yeah. and number two, prevent American expansion northward. Yeah. Um, remember, we've got a gold rush on the Yukon at this point. They wanted BC as part of Confederation. And, and BC said, we will not be part of Confederation unless we are connected to the rest of Canada by rail. Oh, okay. And in order, by the way, all the followers of Confederation, massive rail magnates. <laughs> they were all for this idea. They yeah. could sell a lot of railroads. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> yikes, yikes, yikes. In order to run rail from British Columbia to the rest of Canada, you have to run rail right through Rupert's Land and right oh. through the Red River Valley. And so in 1869, they approached the Hudson Bay Company about selling Canada, mm -hmm. all of Rupert's land. There's just one problem. It's not theirs it's to not sell. It's not theirs to sell, exactly. I think we're going to stop here for today. And uh, when we come back next time, we're going to find out uh, what all those indigenous nations have to say about the sale of Rupert's <laughs> land to the Dominion of Canada. Sounds good. Here on HI101 with Yumiko Hutchinruther. Hey. And we've been talking about the Red River Rebellions, or rather... We have, yeah. Everything leading up to it so far. Yes. We haven't really gotten too uh, deep into the rebellions themselves. And it's actually interesting because rebellion is a little bit of a 
misnomer in certain ways, as we're going to see. Like even knowing that, I went ahead and titled the episode that. Mm-hmm. There, there are historians that have suggested that it's really only called that because it sounds good. It's not actually a very accurate <laughs> title, and it wasn't really called that until basically until the, the entire thing was over. Um, which is kind of interesting. But, it's just uh, flashy use of alliteration. Yeah, pretty much. But we spent a lot of time talking about the relationship between uh, what would become the government of Canada and ind- Indigenous peoples, in mostly in what, what is now Manitoba and the Canadian prairies um, leading up to now, especially the, um, the fur trade, the uh, buffalo hunt, and uh, what was known as the Pemmican War. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where we're picking things up today. I mentioned at the very end of the last episode that a lot of the uh, a lot of the conflict that we're going to be talking about comes from the fact that the Canadian government wanted to bring British Columbia into the Dominion of Canada and needed a railroad in order to make that happen. That's not the only reason that they wanted uh, access to that land in the Red River Colony, but it's a, it's a big part of it. The other problem that they had there was the fact that the United States was trying to or, or was was very aggressively expanding west and they were worried about it expanding northwards as well and mm-hmm. while they had negotiated that 49th parallel as a border they were worried it wouldn't be uh, respected all that well more like guidelines yeah exactly <laughs> so let's uh let's take a little bit of a closer look at sort of the relationship between uh canada and indigenous peoples in that period between the pemmican wars and canada canada's confederation there's a massive shift in sort of the opinion of the Canadian government towards Indigenous peoples in this period of time. Because as we've seen so far, for the most part, these relationships have been negotiated very much on a, I'd love to say equal, but not quite, but at least a nation-to-nation sort of level. There's a lot of treaties, there's a lot of um, give and take involved in these agreements. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they haven't uh, respected them, there's been significant enough pushback that for the most part, Canada and, and Britain has actually acquiesced to what they've agreed to in the past. There's a there's a real shift in that attitude uh, in Canada, starting with, for example, in 1844, there's a uh, there's a, a commission headed uh, by uh, uh, Charles Bagot. It's the Bagot Commission, which refers to. And again, this is we talked about it the last time. There's there's certain terminology that's very outdated, but it's actually written into Canadian law to this day, so unfortunately mm-hmm. accurate. Yeah. Um, so in in this commission, it's uh, the Indians are referred to as half civilized, and he recommends assimilation as uh, best policy moving forward for the Canadian government. Yep. <laughs> so we're just like starting. Off, I made a face there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're starting off strong on this one, and by 1847, the the recommendation of uh, or, or made to the Canadian government for the best way to proceed with this, made, by the way, by a Dr. Adolphus Augustus Ryerson, uh, after whom Ryerson University is named, oh, okay. who is an educational consultant. Uh, the, the recommendation for actually accomplishing this uh, assimilation is through a, a boarding school model, removing uh, indigenous children from their families' homes and educating them away from their traditions. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a, an idea that's going to have some very very terrible ramifications in Canada's future. Yeah, absolutely. There's been a little um, controversy over the naming of Ryerson University in the last few years, by the way. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is this is where it stems from. Makes sense. <laughs> yep. 
1857, uh, by this point, the province of Canada is is kind of the way that things are named. The, the What is now Ontario and Quebec and Canada changes names a bunch of times. But right now it's a province of Canada unifying both. That happened after the uh, 1837 rebellions. They decided the best way to keep all the French people in line is to uh, make one big province that incorporates both English and French. Mm-hmm. Um, that way they won't be a majority in any uh, political body. Great. Go British Empire. <laughs> um, so the re- the recommendation by the, um, or sorry, the, the legislation put in place in 1857 by the province of Canada is uh, what's called the Gradual Civilization Act. Yeah. Wow. More, more faces. One, one thing that's very useful about all of this stuff is that they are really not trying to hide anything in the language. Yeah, I was going to say that's like very on the nose. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They, they really weren't shy about it. The uh, sort of colonial attitude towards the best course as they saw it for indigenous relations is, is really being worn on their sleeve here. Mm-hmm. So the Gradual Civilization Act basically enshrines uh, an idea that's going to become policy for uh, the, the country of Canada when it becomes independent. It enshrines this idea of a trade-off of enfranchisement, so political personhood, basically the ability to uh, participate in civic life with any of the concessions that have been given to legal status Indians through the treaties that have been made over the years. So basically in the Gradual Civilization Act, uh, what they do is they say, well, we will give you all the rights of a full citizen and a land grant of 50 acres that's being carved off of reserve land that's been guaranteed to indigenous people, as well as some some uh, money. But you'll you'll lose your Indian status, so you right. will no longer be a status Indian. You no longer receive any of the things that Britain has promised to indigenous peoples in exchange for uh, either use of these lands or uh, or or whichever other guarantees have been made. And the reaction in Ontario to all of this is outrage by indigenous people there is yeah as far as i could tell there was exactly one person who volunteered for the enfranchisement mm-hmm. process which was weirdly enough a, a shock to these legislators they actually thought people would really want to take advantage of this they really thought yeah. that they would want to become uh canadian citizens with no indian status yeah and i mean it went so poorly that eventually the you know they, they would find uh ways to make the enfranchisement process mandatory uh throughout the years just to try and get as many people off of indian status to try and give as few repayments as possible to reduce the amount of indian reserve land mm-hmm. uh, all of that because it's not just that they're giving them a plot of land off the reserve they're taking that land from the reserve and giving them to uh, giving it to this person as an individual yeah it's really insidious oh yeah absolutely um this is going to exist in in multiple forms for a a very very long time much longer than we'd probably care to admit to Mm -hmm. the way that people with indian status are treated under uh canadian law at this point is is they're, they're not considered legal persons until 1951 Wow, and you know you're not you're not able to vote in a federal election until 1960 uh, unless That's you renounce outrageous. unless you annou- uh, renounce your Indian status. Yeah. Now, to be fair, Canada was never really good with uh, enfranch- enfranchisement in general. Mm-hmm. Um, women didn't get the vote until 1929 federally, and that yeah. involved uh, a court case, colloquially known as the Persons case, that had to be advanced to the British Supreme Court, or rather the the Court of the, the Privy Council. So above Canada's Supreme Court before they were actually granted the status of personhood, yeah. um, legal personhood. I mean, before that, they're considered more like minors. Yeah. So we, we didn't always do great with stuff like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 a long time before we, we lose that idea of indigenous people not having uh, full personhood under Can- Canadian law. Mm-hmm. And that's going to uh, carry, carry forward past uh, confederation. But that's just some of the 
the background that we need to consider when looking at what happens when Canada becomes a country in 1867 and how it applies those laws moving forward. Meanwhile, the Plains people in general aren't really doing that great in this period for a number of reasons. Number one, there's a lot of uh, diseases running through these populations in the mid-19th century. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, outbreaks of smallpox, which historically have been really dangerous for Indigenous peoples. There's also a lot of tuberculosis, which is a really dangerous disease at this point in time. Mm-hmm. And there's substandard medical care uh, available to these people. So it's uh, especially harmful to the populations. A lot of people end up dying from all of this, which is, is really difficult to keep a self-sustaining community when so many people are sick or dying. For sure. But far more important than that is the collapse of the buffalo hunt. And Mm. this is a really important thing to understand about, and not just in Canada, but also in the United States, because a lot of what we're about to talk about actually happens in the United States as a consequence of the U.S. government. But when you're talking about herds of buffalo, they don't really care about state lines and what happens to the buffalo herd in general is going to happen throughout the entire buffalo herd. So... The buffalo hunt for a lot of these people, and and again, we are talking about bison, but the the names get switched back and forth quite a bit uh, in this period of time. The buffalo hunt for a lot of these people is a a spiritual act. It's a sacred act as well as an economic one. Mm -hmm. So the way that these animals are being used for the most part by indigenous nations is, you know, as as cliche as it sounds, it's the whole like use every part of the the buffalo sort of um, stereotype. In a lot of cases, that's really true. And it's it's not only for spiritual reasons, also because it's a really useful animal in in a lot of senses. Um, Not only is bison meat really healthy, like it's really low fat, really high protein. Uh, you can keep a lot of people going on on bison meat for a really long time. Mm. But the leather is extremely tough, mm. uh, really useful. Um, the hides are really warm. And beyond that, with sort of the emergence of the Industrial Revolution in North America and, and in Europe, there's new uses being found for a lot of this stuff that, you know, wouldn't have been thought of by indigenous peoples. For example, when you're talking about like machine belts, like belts that run through uh, rollers and things like that, mm-hmm. bison leather is really strong and it works really well for that. So a lot of huh. these machines are running on bison leather belts because wow. it's much, much tougher than cow leather. Okay. Yeah. Bison bones, you grind them up and it makes really good fertilizer. Really? Like extremely good fertilizer. And bone fertilizer is, is used in a lot of cases, but bison have a lot of bones. They're very big <laughs> animals. Yeah. As useful as all this stuff is, demand starts getting really, really high for all of this stuff. And you don't only have indigenous uh, populations hunting bison for commercial part purposes, although lots did, and especially Métis. Mm-hmm. Um, you also have uh, non-indigenous people hunting for very specific economic reasons. And what you get from that is a far more industrialized version of the buffalo hunt, mm-hmm. where people are going for only hides where you discovered that like a hide you know a single buffalo hide could be worth three dollars at the time a Mm -hmm. really good one could be as much as fifty dollars if it was uh, unbroken in the right way which is a massive like that's more than a full day's pay easily that's way more than people could make say farming Mm -hmm. and so they'd kill buffalo they'd strip their hide and they'd leave them there to rot and and this is like extremely distressing for indigenous nations who are, you know, spiritually tied to the hunt as yeah. well as economically tied. They're going, they're they're like children. They're killing for sport. They're, yeah. you know, what what are they doing? Kind of thing. The other thing you have going into place is uh, at this peri- in this period of time, you have uh, railroads being built across the interior, and bison are so big. And mm-hmm. so sturdy that if you hit one with a, a train, the train's going to lose. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, the buffalo is not going to come out well either, but it will yeah. se- like, it'll severely damage a train. Uh, and, and so the, uh, the rail companies hated having these things around. And 
I think something that people don't understand about bison, because you see them sort of like standing around looking a little, you know, dopey, mm-hmm. is they're really strong. They're really fast and they can jump really high. Yeah. I think they must be a lot bigger than I'm imagining them to oh, be. Okay. So like, I used to think they were a, a full grown bison is, it can be up to like six feet high at the shoulder. They're like six to nine feet long, uh, not including the tail. Wow. Um, yeah, they can be over a ton. Cause I was thinking like a cow or something. No, they're bigger than cows. <laughs> yeah. They're bigger than cows. Wow. Okay. Yeah. What's more, they can run at like 60 kilometers an hour when they get going. Oh, wow. And they can jump up to six feet high. Wow. Yeah. They, these are not animals. That's that really high for with. like an animal of that size. Yeah. It's massive. It's, yeah. it's huge. These things are like, that's the thing you think of a, ca- a cow and you, you know, you put in like a three foot barbed wire fence yeah. and you'll probably get most of them to stick around yeah and i think too because like anytime i think i've seen bison they've been like out like in fields mm-hmm. so they look obviously smaller than they are if you're like up close but oh sure yeah. yeah well there's a reason you don't let people get close to buffalo yeah. um they today in national parks in the u.s bison kill more people than bears mm-hmm. yeah oh, they're just big they get going they'll they'll run you over they're very yeah. very big and very strong so the the uh, the rail uh, lines start promoting uh, these hunting trips where they would take people out on train cars, find herds of bison, mm-hmm. and basically let them shoot them out the window of the train <laughs> just to kill off these herds because yeah. they were so damaging to the to the rail. Because these things are so big and so strong, like we started saying before, you can't just put a fence up around the rail because they can mm-hmm. jump over it. Mm-hmm. If they can see field on another side of the fence, they'll try and knock it down. Yeah. If, fence ain't no thing. <laughs> um, today, the way that they f- fence bison in is with steel fences set into concrete. Ideally, they should be 20 feet high. Wow. And they should have interlocking slats so that they can't see through them. Wow. That's intense. Yeah. Anything else and they'll try and get through. Yeah. Yeah. People are killing all these uh, bison off of train cars. There's bison hunting tournaments where people will see how many they can kill in a day. Oh, goodness. The way that bison work is a little bit different than a lot of herd animals. Because they're so big, they don't really have a lot of natural predators. So, you know, you see a nature show like a a cheetah chases down an antelope or something like that. Right. The rest of the herd is gone. Yeah. An adult bison doesn't really have any major predators, Mm -hmm. at least by, you know, uh, modern times. So really, uh, predators only go after young bison and usually sickly ones. Mm -hmm. So their defense mechanism, if a bison is hurt or sick or whatever, is the herd gathers around them to protect them. Mm -hmm. Because like you got a pack of wolves coming for them and and you just kind of circle around the thing that they're coming for. They're not. Yeah, they have no chance. Yeah, no. So so that's their natural inclination, which means when you shoot a bison, all the other bison just stay there. Mm -hmm. In fact, they get in tighter. So it's really easy to kill a bunch of them at the Uh... time. Yeah. That's kind of sad. Yeah. What's more, there's a U.S. government policy of buffalo slaughter. Really? Yes. Part of it is the, 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 the rail line's interests are important economically to the U.S. government. Part of it is that settlement is a really important part of uh, uh, for uh, uh, federal policy. Mm-hmm. And bison are on land that would be really great for cattle. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you want okay, cattle yeah. ranchers to settle out there, you need space for them. And you can't have buffalo eating all the... Uh, all the grass on those lands. So let's get rid of them. What's more, there are a lot of people in the U.S. Uh, Army that recognize the fact that indigenous people depend on buffalo as a food source and an economic source. Mm-hmm. And there's been attempts over the 19th century to engage directly in warfare with these nations. And it's, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but they found them uh, more difficult to eradicate than they would have expected. Right. And there are certain officers that have noted the fact that, well, buffalo are a lot easier to kill than people. So let's kind of cut them off at the source. 
how much this is an intentional policy is still a little bit up for the debate. Mm-hmm. But the fact that this is a is something at the forefront of these people's minds is not. It's it's well documented. Right. All of this has a number of really detrimental effects, obviously, on on uh, indigenous nations. For example, intertribal conflict uh, increases as resources diminish. Mm-hmm. Uh, the less buffalo there are, the, the fewer there are to hunt. And if you're trying to hunt the same herd as someone else, you're going to get into conflict. Yeah. Nations are forced to take bad deals with the government in return for food. They're literally starving and are sometimes forced to sell land to the U.S. government in exchange for short-term relief for famine, mm-hmm. um, which puts them at a really detrimental uh, position for uh, negotiations. And this is the period in which you see a lot of the uh, Great Plains uh, nations lose land to the federal government. Right. There's a spiritual effect here. I mean, the bison hunt was an intrinsic part of these people's spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. There's really sad stories after the buffalo are more or less wiped out of of, um, them basically trying to perform buffalo hunt uh, rituals on cows, which is just not the same thing. And yeah, I don't know. It, it that, that one kind of chokes me up a little. I'll be honest. Yeah, it's it's just not the same. And, and they they felt the same way. There's also an ecological effect. The Great Plains, like you, you kind of think of it, it's like okay, big grassy fields, whatever. You know, those those ecosystems aren't that simple. Mm-hmm. And there's a really big difference. Well, there's a lot of big differences between <laughs> bison and, and, and cattle. But one of the big differences is that bison graze selectively, and they'll they'll eat certain plants and leave other plants. Hmm. Cows will basically just eat everything. And what ends up happening is that rather than cultivating the the, the plains, you, you kind of strip everything out. And the result is that since uh, or in the last 150 years or so, the Great Plains have actually lost about a third of the topsoil that they had back then. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, there's even speculation that the, the Dust Bowl effect in the 1930s, mm-hmm. you know, during the Depression was in part caused by this transition from bison to cattle because cattle use a lot more water. Right. They take less care of the topsoil. They they strip the cultivation, which leads to a lack of diversity in uh, in plant species. Again, a little bit of speculation here, but it's kind of like, well, it, it would make it, some it sense. It makes sense. Yeah, yeah, like it pans out. In the late 18th century, the estimates for buffalo population in North America was about 60 million. And their range stretched from all the way from Africa to the Gulf of Mexico. Wow. By the late 18, by the 1880s, there were less than a thousand left in the wild. My goodness. It was an incredibly devastating event that happened. And we probably shouldn't talk about it as an event that happened. It's something that was deliberately uh, done. I'm not sure anyone believed that it would result in the entire collapse and near extinction of a, of a species, but mm-hmm. there was a lot of intentionality behind what went into it. Um, there's about 500,000 bison today. About 15,000 of them are considered fully wild. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are crossbred with cattle at this point. So, you know, in terms of uh, genetic purity, there's a lot of... It, it was a massive uh, uh, bottleneck for the population, right? So they've got mm-hmm. genetic issues, all yeah. sorts of stuff. They'll never be quite the same, I don't think. But there there have been in, uh, attempts to intru- uh, reintroduce them. They're all just very, very recent. Mm-hmm. So the Métis that we talked about last time had industry based on two uh, really major industries, bison and fur, and now neither really exist anymore. And they're yeah. in a much, much harder place. So they depended mostly on farming, on kind of the same sort of subsistence settlement life that most uh, uh, Canadian settlers would have uh, lived at this point in time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by the time of the uh, of Canadian Con- Confederation in the 1860s, the Red River colony that we left last time, it's still going to be mostly Métis. There are still the remnants of those 
Scottish settlers under the the Selkirk expedition, but there's not a majority of them, although they're fairly vocal in the community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they've kind of entered a sort of, um, I don't want to say they're in a great position necessarily, but Mm -hmm. they're trying to figure out some way of getting by. And then they find out that the Canadian government is planning on basically coming in and taking that land and doing with it what they will. Yeah. And they've heard about all these uh, about all the ways that they've treated indigenous people who are actually within their territory and they know what it's like they're also very worried about what the united states could do if they came in the red river colony is in a really precarious position in terms of its future at this point so while the day-to-day life isn't necessarily bad for most of the, these metis mm-hmm. um the future prospects are, are a really stressful point of, of life for them so when the new canadian government enters negotiations with the Hudson Bay Company to acquire all of Rupert's land. They're looking, as we said, to establish that railroad, but also keep the United States at bay. Yeah. And so there's there's some understandable uh, motivations behind it. But the real issue at the heart of it is that they don't own the land, which is something we talked about a lot last time, right? All that the Hudson Bay Company actually holds is a charter to a trade monopoly in this region for anyone who is actually subject to... Uh, the British crown, Mm -hmm. which is not the same thing as actually holding title to the land. The short story of the transfer of Rupert's land to the government of Canada basically goes something like this. It's a three-sided transaction. In November 19th of 1869, the Hudson Bay Company surrenders their charter. Basically, the Canadian government has made a strong enough case to both the company and to the British crown that it's in the best interest of not only Canada, but also the British Empire to uh, put this uh, this land under Canada, uh, Canadian control mm-hmm. um, for unity of the empire, for settlement opportunities for Canadian citizens to keep the United States at bay. That's still a real uh, concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about last time the fact that the, uh, uh, the Confederate uh, side in the Civil War had been supported by the British, uh, you know, kind of uh, unofficially, and they were worried about future uh, invasion by the North after they won. Mm-hmm. So they made this case. The Hudson Bay Company surrenders their charter over Rupert's land to the British Crown. So they give it back, basically. Mm-hmm. Then on the 23rd of June, 1870, Rupert's land is incorporated into Canada through an amendment to the British North America Act. That's the, the Canadian Act of uh, Constitution. And in that act, they take possession of this land under the condition that it make treaties with any affected indigenous tribes to ensure a peaceful transfer. So they're given the land, but also the responsibility to negotiate in good faith with indigenous people. Right. And then in uh, 1870, as a separate transaction, the government of Canada pays the Hudson Bay Company uh, $1.5 million, which today would be a little over $30 million U.S., uh, as compensation for having relinquished their uh, their charter. All sounds pretty simple. <laughs> That's not really how it goes down on the ground. Mm-hmm. The Métis were very wary of this coming land transfer. It was kind of rumored to be be happening because, I mean, they don't necessarily have access to what's happening behind closed doors yeah. in London and in Ottawa. Um, but you hear things, right? Mm-hmm. They're concerned about land ownership, which they don't actually have proper legal titles to under British law, even though, you know, they, they own the land, it's their land. Um, they're having sovereignty imposed on them, right? So they're, they're worried about not having that piece of paper. They, they know that there's a certain aspect of having to play by the other party's rules here. Yeah, for sure. They're also concerned about religious freedoms as mm-hmm. well as language rights. Keep in mind that the majority of these Métis are French speaking. 
and a lot of them because of their French fathers back however many generations are actually uh, Roman Catholic and quite strong Roman Catholic rather than uh, practicing traditional indigenous uh, religions. Mm -hmm. So they're worried not only about their sort of rights as free indigenous people, but also their rights as uh, French Roman Catholics, because there are some guarantees for uh, freedom of religion and for freedom of language under the British North America Act when Canada is created, Mm -hmm. but it's fairly explicitly restricted to Quebec. Mm, And it doesn't do a lot for uh, uh, protecting French outside of Quebec. Um, So they're worried that they're going to come in and basically be forced to speak English and not practice Catholicism anymore. This Scottish minority welcomes it. They're an English Protestant minority. They want Mm -hmm. an English Protestant uh, system put in place. That would be quite quite agreeable for them. (laughs) Of course. Um, They want expansion. They want more English settlers. They want anglicization of the government. They want a British-style government, all of that stuff. So, but, But they're very much in the minority at this point. All of this goes south when Canada's Minister of Public Works, uh, it's a man named William McDougall, he, along with a, a Montreal politician, Georges Etienne Cartier, between the two of them basically organized the entire Rupert's Land uh, transfer on behalf of the government of Canada. Okay. And McDougall is very excited about this whole thing. Like He sees this as a resounding political success. He sees mm-hmm. this as a big win for Canada. And he's so excited that he decides to jump the gun a little bit. And he sends a surveying team to the colony before any of these transfers have happened. So he sends the team in August of 1869. This is before Hudson Bay has uh, relinquished their their uh, charter on the land. Ooh. So this survey team has zero legal authority to be there. Yeah. Now, all they're doing is surveying the land. All they're doing. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, but this is loaded with meaning because, number one, it's the first, like, concrete sign that they have that they're about to be incorporated into Canada. Yeah, like the subtext is pretty obvious there. And then there's another really symbolic aspect of this, which is that they start plotting all this land out into square lots. Mm. Now, you remember from way back in like grade seven history, the talk about like square English Mm -hmm. lots versus the long, uh, thin French style lots. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, the Red River Colony was uh, divided into French style, long, thin lots. And This is seen two ways. Number one, it's seen as an attack on their French culture. Yeah. And number two, it's seen as an attack on their indigenous sovereignty. Yeah, absolutely. You're 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 seeing you're seeing someone come in and both ignore their their tacit land claims and culturally fly in the face of the way that they've just sort of collectively decided to organize their society and their their um and their land. Yeah. Uh this is a problem. Yep. (laughs) This is a very big problem. And the thing is, McDougall was warned about all of this. He was told that this was going to go badly. He was warned by the Catholic bishop of the region. He was warned by the Anglican bishop of the region. He was warned by the the governor of uh, Rupert's Land from the Hudson Bay Company. They all told him, they're going to hate this. Like, you can't, you can't do this without, number one, some protection, number two, some legal authority. Yeah. Did they just, like, did he just not take their advice seriously? Or was he just... Like, why did he go ahead with that, given all the warnings he had? I think part of it is this um, excitement about kind of closing a deal on something that he's been working very hard at. Yeah. I think a lot of it, too, is that there is, as we've seen, a very pervasive political culture of not necessarily taking indigenous peoples all that seriously. This land is presented to the rest of Canada as virgin land. Mm -hmm. There's this concept that is, is thrown around a lot when discussing relationships between indigenous peoples and 
uh, colonizers. Uh, it's called Terras Nullius or okay. Terra Nullius. I forget which one I'll have to check. But uh, this idea of no one lives here. It's empty land. Yeah. And it's not. There's it's not people, empty land. There's people living here. They're using yeah. it. Um, you know, there's there's this idea that, oh, you know, you look out and it's like, well, no one's actually turned this into farmland or no one's built a house here. Therefore, it's not being used. Well, no, that's that's buffalo habitat. You need that plains uh, area here for the buffalo to thrive. And you need those buffalo to thrive in order to have food. But because it's not being used exactly the way that these people would prefer like envision it, to, it. And because they don't have a piece of paper saying, I so-and-so own these lands, you know, uh, you know, having survey surveyed lines and all of that stuff then then it doesn't count it's it's very ethnocentric and it's it's going to cause a lot of issues yeah uh, with these relationships between colonial groups and indigenous ones yeah it's a very like tunnel vision way of Mm -hmm. like understanding what it looks like or what it means to like occupy a space yes basically well and mcdougall is very much like in that that political elite that you know for example, you know, put into place the Gradual Civilization Act. Like he's mm-hmm. not really concerned about all of this. So no, these these warnings are unheeded. He's basically seeing this as, well, I'm going to have the authority within two months. Like, what are they going to do about it, basically? Right. So enter into our story, Louis Riel. Louis Riel was born 1844 in the Red River Colony, and his family was fairly popular in the area for standing fairly firm on uh land claims in terms of what had been agreed to with the uh, well british government at the time mm-hmm. um they were well known they were also well known uh to be extremely devout catholics they were uh you know tight with the church there was a lot of uh donations there's a lot of uh personally knowing leadership in the church in the region right so riel himself was educated from a fairly early age in the church um, he was actually sent off at the age of 13 to uh, Montreal to be trained for the priesthood. He was he was personally uh, kind of earmarked for the priesthood by the bishop. Okay. Sent back to Montreal to get a proper French Catholic relation uh, uh, education to to eventually enter the priesthood. Mm-hmm. So extremely well educated, uh, learned to speak English fluently as well as as French. He did eventually lose interest in in uh, the priesthood after the death of his father. Kind of meandered about a little bit in in Montreal uh, and ended up working as a law a law clerk for quite a while. So he became quite familiar both with um, sort of the ins and outs of religion as well as uh, the mm. Canadian justice system, yeah. which sets him apart quite a bit from a lot of the other Métis in the area. It's it's not as though uh, you know none of them were educated, but a lot of them didn't have the opportunity to attend that level of education and, and uh, acquire that level of experience with um, specifically how how the British system worked. A lot of these people are still working as you know uh, making pemmican or or um, sailing barges up and down the rivers, things like that. It's mm-hmm. it's fairly uh, rural at this point. He leaves Montreal, kind of works in a number of different places, including St. Paul. Uh, keep in mind that the border between Canada and the U.S., especially for Métis people at this point, is still relatively fluid. I mean, mm-hmm. you just sort of go where you need to, and you'll probably have people there. A lot of people don't really think of Minnesota as having much of a, a French tradition, but yeah. there's, there's quite a there, there was quite a large uh, Métis population, at least at this point in time. He eventually returns to the Red River Colony in 1868, which is the year before uh mcdougall shows up with his survey team and he's he's quite young at this point i mean he's he's 24 
He's done a lot in that yeah, period of time. No kidding. When these surveyors show up, Riel denounces the surveys in this firebrand speech on the steps of the cathedral uh, in August of 1868, basically saying, we can't allow these people to do this. This is uh, illegal mm-hmm. uh, and it violates you know, all sorts of things, including the 1763 treaties mm-hmm. uh, that we tra- talked about so much in the first part, saying that you know British settlers can't settle west of the uh, St. Lawrence River and its basin uh, without indigenous assent. And basically what he's saying is we need to have the opportunity as colonists to negotiate with the government of Canada what the terms of our inclusion in the Dominion of Canada are going to be. Yeah. He's not necessarily opposed to the idea of joining Canada. The way that Canada was working at this point, it's a confederation. So it's it's very much a there's a separation between the powers of the provinces and the federal government at this point. And he's not necessarily opposed to the idea of having a Métis province, a mm-hmm. province that is entirely made up of Métis people, where Métis people have a voice in the federal government and potentially affect change from the inside. What he's opposed to is the idea of uh, unincorporated lands like what the United States is using to sort of push indigenous people out um you know to the south he's seeing that as a, as a massive problem and he's going we want proper representation we want uh funding for education things like that mm-hmm. it, it takes him a couple of months to get really uh, much of a resistance organized there's actually another uh, there's actually another metis uh leader who's also trying to garner a uh, garner support in this period of time uh william deese who uh was advocating for a much more violent approach to resistance it was very much a uh, no, they can't come. Let's let's arm ourselves and, mm-hmm. and drive them out. Mm-hmm. But but ultimately, uh, Riel's philosophy wins out to some extent. Uh, you know, partially through you know uh, what you like to think of like as a very intellectual like <laughs> you know both ideas were considered, and this is the one that came out partially because William Deese was essentially driven out of town. Yeah. <laughs> um. So it's it's a little of little of both there. But by October of 1869, Riel had kind of emerged as a tacit Métis leader. He was well-spoken, well-educated, able to engage both French and English populations in the area, understood the way that the government worked. Mm -hmm. A really strong choice for for leadership, despite his young age. In October, uh, he he leads a group of men to where the survey team has begun working and essentially tells them, stop. Like, they, they disrupt the work. Now... It's all fairly nonviolent. People will get arrested, but we're not yeah. seeing slaughter at this point. But basically, he goes to them and says, what authority do you have to be here? Yeah. And they don't have a good answer for him because they don't have any authority. Mm-hmm. They haven't been brought in by the Hudson Bay Company, who is currently governing. The government of Canada has no authority here. Mm-hmm. It's nothing. There's nothing here. That was October 11th. Five days later, October 16th, he organizes what they call the, the Métis National Committee. And it is a pseudo-governmental board of Métis. It's uh, sort of a representative body representing Métis interests in Rupert's land or in the Red River Colony specifically. Mm -hmm. And they've done this to sort of give themselves uh, an air of legitimacy and as a way to organize their messaging and their negotiations. So this is a way to kind of say, like, this is our, this is what we want. This is who represents us. Mm -hmm. Um, This is who is allowed to negotiate on our behalf. Here's, here are our demands. The main goal here was to force the negotiation before Canada t- took over this land. They wanted all this stuff in place before Canada came in. Yeah. McDougal himself decides to come out and try and put some sort of end to all of this, but he still doesn't have any actual legal authority. And and in November, uh, November 2nd, he's turned away at the border by armed Métis. Now, again, no violence is, is done in this uh, this. Uh, confrontation but right. they won't let him pass the borders yeah and he actually has to um flee down into the united states for for his safety basically because he has nowhere else to go that same day 
Riel and a number of men take uh, Fort Gary, which is the trading post at what would now be Winnipeg. Um, it's the main trading post in the area, and there's no bloodshed in this. They just march in and take control of it. It's very much symbolic control over the colony. It's sort of mm-hmm. the biggest outpost in the area. It's where a lot of the... Not that there's really a proper government here. There's what's known as the Assiniboine uh, Council that sort of looks uh, looks after everything, but that's just a, an arm of the HBC. So right. that's where a lot of this business is done by having control over Fort Gary. It's as much as symbolic as it is a practical control over the Red River Valley. Okay, this is seen as like a massive political win for Riel. Like it's it's he managed to take control without any violence. Mm-hmm. Riel doesn't really have like unanimous support in all of this those scottish settlers that we talked about are very upset by all of this they were really looking forward to this whole canadian control mm-hmm. thing and there is some kind of backlash against what real is doing so to his credit he basically decides to open up the metis national committee and and says okay well each parish in the red river colony uh, is allowed to send one anglo delegate and we'll hear what they have to say and we'll work together as like a parliamentary body basically mm-hmm. we want anglo and french uh, representatives here they don't really go anywhere though it's not it, it doesn't seem as though they're really negotiating in good faith yeah they really only want the metis to go away and yeah. to accept canadian rule governor mctavish the 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 hbc governor uh, on november 16th basically orders the metis to lay down arms and this is sort of like a last ditch effort to actually appeal to some sort of authority here mm-hmm. But at this point, Riel has control over Fort Gary. Uh, they've managed to turn away the Canadian authorities. Things seem to be going pretty well. The Métis National Council is, or committee, sorry, is uh, well established. And he basically says no. Yeah. And instead, they declare that they're going to form a provisional government to replace the Assiniboine Council and uh, take control of the Red River Colony. McDougall is extremely upset about this and on december 1st sends a letter saying that the hbc has uh dissolved the council of Assiniboia, that they no longer have any legal authority over the colony or over rupert's land hmm. and that he is now the lieutenant general of uh this territory now here's the thing he did this because december 1st was the planned transfer date to canada right But when word of this uprising had gotten back to Ottawa, they decided to delay the transfer date until things had been taken care of. McDougall didn't know that. So what he's effectively done here is dissolve the only, from the British perspective, the only legitimate authority in the area without establishing a new Canadian authority. Oh, no. Thereby leaving the place entirely devoid of a government. Yeah. And in that space, the, the Métis just step up and say, okay, well, we're the government now. Yeah. The pro-Anglo resistance, which had gotten somewhat violent, was quashed uh, in the first week or so of December, and the the provisional government is officially established on December 8th, so a week after the Hudson Bay Company is declared uh, no longer um, in control. McDougall flees from the territory, probably a wise decision. Yeah. (laughs) And... Uh, the, the federal government sends out a, a couple of rounds of negotiators to meet with the new provisional government, and they're offering, you know, assurances of, asp- of respect for land claims, and they're offering guarantees of language rights and representation and all of that. Mm-hmm. The Métis, meanwhile, have written this series of 14 demands, and when you read them, they're all fairly reasonable. It's things like recognition of current land claims, yeah. uh, funding for education and roads. Uh, you know, it, it, they're basically asking to be treated as a full, proper province. They want representation in the federal government. They yeah, want- for sure. You know, it's it's all reasonable. It's all very reasonable. 
a lot of it is really trying to make sure that they're both French and English cultures are are well taken care of, but they're not looking for any special treatment necessarily as indigenous nations here, other than the legal recognition of their land claims. Yeah. Just under the federal government. After the declaration of this government, the pro-Anglo side kind of flares up again. There's jailbreaks, there's armed organization again, but it's it's quashed down again. The, one of the major leaders, though, a uh, major Charles Bolton, is sentenced to death uh, mm. for this armed uprising. Okay, um, he's he's leading an armed uprising against the legitimate government of the area. But Riel's advisors basically say, you know what, as a as a sign of goodwill, let's pardon this guy. We'll put him in jail, but mm-hmm. you know, we won't we won't kill him. That seems. Uh, that seems like too much. Uh, this is partially his own advisors. This is partially requests from uh, the Canadian government. Mm-hmm. And Riel decides like, okay, well, maybe that's for the best. There's one problem that comes out of this, though, which is that another of the uh, Anglo resistors, a guy named Thomas Scott, sees this as a sign of weakness from the Métis. And even though he's in jail, he starts uh, uh, attacking his guards. He starts, you know, harassing them verbally. He, he's he's mm-hmm. uh, he becomes such a, a problem for these guards that they actually request that he be further charged with um, uh, insubordination. Yeah. And when that trial is kind of going a little bit sideways, they add a, tra- a charge of treason. And he's found guilty. The court that sentences him recommends a death sentence. And Riel agrees to this. Mm-hmm. His opinion is that if he doesn't send a message that this government is willing to enforce its laws, um, then they'll be seen as weak and they won't have any position of authority whatsoever in negotiation. So without doing this, they've basically lost uh, uh, any any leverage that they had up until now. Yeah. The government requests amnesty for Scott. Even some of Riel's uh, uh, advisors are saying this is a bad idea, but he decides, no, we better uphold this. Mm-hmm. And on the 4th of March, 1870, uh, Scott is is executed by firing squad. This is about the time that it starts being referred to as the Red River Rebellion, rather than uh, a number of other names. Mm -hmm. People in Ontario specifically are absolutely outraged at the killing of Scott. It's seen as more of a French versus English issue at this point in time, rather than a a settler versus indigenous issue. Mm -hmm. But there are howls for... Uh, Riel's head at this point, which I find interesting because, again, when this happens, there's no Canadian authority in this area. The Métis Provisional Government is the official government of the area, and yeah. one of the things that goes along with having sovereignty is a, is a monopoly on force and the ability to enforce your laws. Yep. Should Scott have been executed for what he did? Probably not. We are running a rebellion here, quote unquote, uh-huh. that so far has zero casualties on one side and one on the other. Yeah. That's a pretty tame rebellion. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> In fact, it's one of the most bloodless executions I've ever seen. Uh, it's it's amazing. April 11th, Métis delegates arrive in Ottawa to negotiate with the federal government, and they manage to successfully negotiate the colony into Canada as a vastly majority uh, Métis colony. It's about 90% of the population is Métis at this point in time. Right. Um, it's tiny compared to what uh, Manitoba is now. It basically incorporates just the Red River Valley area. It was called the postage stamp province when it was created. Because mm-hmm. if you look at a map, it's it's just this little tiny square on there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is uh, it is uh, incorporated into Canada on, on May 12th of 1870. And a lot of the concessions that the Métis asked for were uh, agreed to. 
um, things like uh, land claims were agreed to, things like a bilingual parliament and uh, court system are agreed to, lots of stuff that they were looking for. Mm -hmm. It actually goes fairly well for them. However, at the exact same time as the Manitoba Act is being confirmed, a military expedition uh, leaves Ontario heading for Manitoba. Uh, this is known as the Wolseley expedition after General Wolseley, who's running it. And this is done partially. If you ask the official uh, federal government at this point in time, it's mm-hmm. to help Manitoba secure its borders against the United States. And oh. it's a mission of peace. Okay. If you ask the average Ontario voter at this point in time, it's to put down that dog Riel. Yeah. <laughs> Officially, they're not there to take over the government in any way. But there are numerous rumors that members of this uh, military force are prepared to lynch Riel for what he's done to Scott. Mm. And so when this expedition arrives in Fort Garry in August, uh, Riel, along with a number of his followers, uh, flee, fearing for their lives. Mm-hmm. They tried to negotiate an amnesty into these negotiations with, with the, the government and, uh, under the Manitoba Act, but failed to do so. Now they got some promises of like, maybe eventually we'll get some amnesty in there, mm-hmm. but they never secured anything hard, which is the same as nothing at all, really, in this situation. And tensions are so high over all of this that they don't really trust a a true amnesty at this point anyways so Mm -hmm. this is essentially the end of the red river rebellion at least the first uh version of the red river rebellion military uh secures uh again bloodlessly uh fort gary and riel leaves for the dakota territory so uh, what would be today um north dakota okay uh, or minnesota i actually don't remember which side of the line he ended up on but that's uh that's the end of the first rebellion and it's really interesting in that when you look at it, uh, no real rebelling happened here. Mm-hmm. There was a fairly bloodless transfer of power a couple of times from one government to a second provisional one and then finally to the uh, Canadian government. Yeah. One man lost his life. There were a number of people put in jail. There were a number of people turned away at gunpoint. But that was about it. Mm-hmm. And yet the federal government is really never going to forgive Riel for what he did here. So I think this is a great place to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about what the federal government learned from all of this in terms of uh, dealing with uh, indigenous people on the plains and And what happens to Riel. Talking about the Red River Rebellion proper, the one with Louis Riel leading a a resistance against the government of Canada Mm -hmm. over uh, land rights in the Red River Valley. And it does result in the creation of the province of Manitoba, which in a lot of ways is what the Métis were looking to accomplish out of all of this. Right. Um, this is created through the Manitoba Act of 1870. And the act does grant the Métis a lot of the concessions that they were looking for. Remember, we were talking about like there were uh, there were 14 points that they were looking for from the federal government, most of which were just looking for proper equal provincial representation on a provincial and federal level. What it doesn't do is give the Métis people any sort of legal recognition as indigenous under Canadian law. Okay. Um, but they didn't really necessarily see that as a as a key piece of this agreement because Manitoba was, you know, 90% plus indigenous at this point. And because the way that the division of powers between the federal and provincial governments work in Canada... A lot of key items such as education are under provincial jurisdiction. They thought that with that majority, they would be able to sort of maintain a Métis culture or Métis way of life in Mm -hmm. the province uh, free of of federal um, meddling, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So this is really seen as a win for for the Métis, even though Louis Riel himself had had to flee. The the one grant that is given to the Métis people, though, by the federal government is uh, some land grants. 
both the land that is given to uh, or both the land that's currently being used mm-hmm. by the Métis people and there's an additional land grant given. It's uh, 5,700 square kilometers, which given the size of the Rupert's land grant, which was just given, uh, it's nearly 4 million square kilometers. It's really a small amount of land, but the federal government is hoping that this is enough to cover basically any Métis people who come forward to take advantage of this. Basically, they're offering uh, 96 acres to anyone who can come forward and prove that they're of Métis descent. So that's not considered like to be a substantial amount of land then compared to what they would have been used to or well, like they, given the context of... They, they'd be able to keep the land that they're currently on, but anyone mm-hmm. who doesn't currently own land had an, uh, an opportunity to claim... Uh, land for their own. Okay. So if you didn't currently own a homestead, you could go to the federal government, say, yes, I'm Métis, right. provide documentation showing that. And uh, then they'd give you like the 96 acres? Yes, that's okay. right. Uh, the issue is they've significantly underestimated how many Métis people lived in Manitoba. <laughs> and this land grant that they set aside uh, was way too small. They, uh, you know, the, the modern province of Manitoba is is over 1.3 million square kilometers. It's it's massive. Mm-hmm. Um, 5,700 square kilometers is nothing. I, I was trying to find some comparison, you know, modern day geographically. And the best I could come up with is that's basically two states of Rhode Island, which are not like that's not big. Yeah, it's a pretty small state. It, it's very small. Um, and, and given that they, you know, the federal government just gained control of uh, nearly four kilo- four million square kilometers. Like mm-hmm. you'd think that they would just sort of open up the land grants a little bit. You'd think so. But what they do instead is uh, decide to start giving money in kind. So they they started paying people out at a dollar an acre. Uh, so you get ninety six dollars instead of land, and that is a fair rate at this point in time for mm-hmm. land in this area. But there's a difference between you know just straight cash and title like to actually land. Actually, having like a physical plot. Yeah, yeah. Owning land is a really important thing. It's it's much more valuable than the than the cash it's necessarily worth. That's going to appreciate in value. Uh, that's going to mean being able to provide a livelihood for your family through farming. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of the first uh, uh, example we see, really right off the bat, of the federal government basically trying to find uh, any loopholes they can to not necessarily get around every agreement that they have with indigenous people, but certainly find the easiest way for them to, mm-hmm. um, you know, on paper, fulfill their obligations without necessarily going out of their out of their way, causing themselves any issues. Right. Now, they had learned from this whole Red River Rebellion that, you know, unilateral imposition of power on indigenous nations may not be uh, the best way to go about this whole yeah. expansion thing. It can result in unrest and violence. Um it's clear that these people do remember their legal rights and that these legal rights still stand. Mm-hmm. There are agreements that have been made with uh, the British crown that, you know, they st- they're still in effect at this point in time. And these people haven't forgotten that they existed. Yeah. They know that they're there and they understand that the, you know, the government of Canada can't just go and do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. So it becomes imperative that the Canadian government uh, negotiate. Uh, which is something that was required in the Rupert's Land uh, transfer anyway, but it's, yeah. it's it's clear that they can't just ignore that responsibility to negotiate with Indigenous peoples in the Plains if they're uh, firm set on expanding into this area. The government begins uh, negotiating treaties in 1871, and this is a series of treaties known as the Numbered Treaties b- because they're known by uh, just numbers. It's Treaty 1, Treaty 2, Treaty 3, etc. And these treaties are negotiated. It's really important to understand they're, they're negotiated by the Lieutenant General of uh, the uh, the province of Manitoba. Mm-hmm. And the way that the way the power works in Canada in terms of uh, you know head of state is that Canada is 
technically a monarchy even to this day. Uh, the the reigning king or queen of Britain is the head of state, and you know a lot of people will say you know the, or talk about the prime minister as though they're the the head of state, and like yeah, functionally, practically, kind yes, <laughs> but that's not where ultimate power lies in in Canada. There there's uh, royal assent required to you know sign laws, etc. And the way this is accomplished is through a governor general at a federal level uh, who is uh, an appointed position that works uh, or that acts as the queen's representative in government. And then on a provincial level, it's the lieutenant general, um, lieutenant, not lieutenant, because it's uh, a French route uh, rather than English one for the, for the word. The treaties are negotiated with these indigenous nations through the, uh, the, the lieutenant general or sorry, lieutenant governor, because it's a it's a it's a, an agreement between two sovereign nations mm-hmm. via the the head of state of both and this is really important to the indigenous nations that are uh, negotiating and they don't want to deal with some sort of uh, down the list government official they want somebody who actually has real power and authority to uh, to enforce all of this because they remember yeah. they remember how this works with all of the other agreements that they've made with representatives of the uh, of the crown mm-hmm. and how strong they've been for them. So they, they re- reject basically anyone other than a, a direct uh, representative. These treaties are going to be different though than uh, previous treaties that have been signed with indigenous bands. Previously, they've made sure that any agreements that are signed are written in both English and in uh, whichever language they're uh, uh, they're dealing with right. uh, on the uh, on the indigenous nations side, and they make sure that the translations are very good. Both copies are signed. Everything is very very clear on both sides. Mm-hmm. They're also making sure that any legal traditions that exist on the part of the indigenous nations are uh, incorporated into these agreements partially due to respect, partially to ensure that the treaties are, are enforced properly. Yeah. Um, Everyone's on the same page. Which is important in a negotiation, right? Of course. <laughs> These numbered treaties are going to be conducted entirely in English. There will be translators provided for each of the indigenous nations that are being negotiated with, usually Métis. Right. But the ultimate agreement is going to be in English, signed in English. And there's a lot of confusion over... What exactly is being agreed to? And we know that because we have diaries of both British negotiators or Canadian negotiators, I should say, and indigenous negotiators on how the, you know, how the negotiations are proceeding, what they're agreeing to, Mm. how they're feeling about it, all of this stuff. And what you get when you compare them even day to day, it's kind of like they, they clearly have a very different sense of what's going on. Yeah. And part of this is a lack of clarity on the side of the Canadian uh, government where they're using, they're, they're occasionally using language, for example, that is extremely unclear in an effort to, uh, they believe appeal to uh, the people they're negotiating with. There's, there's one example where they, they use the phrase for as long as the sun walks. Oh no. <laughs> which, you know, it's, it's not like it doesn't come from anywhere in indigenous uh, tradition, but it's, it's, it feels like they're, um, they're appealing to them on sort of a condescending yeah. uh, level rather than actually laying out clear terms. Yeah, like it's lacking traditional context for that kind of terminology to be used. Right. And there's also not an intention necessarily for the traditional meaning of that phrase to be uh, yeah. upheld in the way it's... Like, what does that mean on the Canadian-British side of things, right? right. Like, and, and that's where that clarity that we talked about is is kind of missing. Mm-hmm. There's also examples of things being written into the English side of treaties that aren't actually 
discussed with or agreed to by the indigenous nations that are doing the negotiations. Okay. So they don't even realize that they've actually agreed to this. Uh-oh. Yeah, it's really bad. Yeah. And there's there's also examples of, of um, negotiators pandering to indigenous cultures in other ways as well. For example, during negotiations for Treaty 6, there's a uh, peace pipe ceremony. Mm-hmm. And this is a really... This is as binding as anything in 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 any other legal uh, uh, tradition, mm-hmm. where anything that's said during a, a negotiation following one of these ceremonies, uh, you you can't lie. Like this is a this is a truth binding yeah. act, and the fact that the British, or I keep saying British, it is Canadian at this point. The fact that the Canadian negotiators um, would go and and alter things afterwards mm-hmm. was absolutely unthinkable to the people that they were working with yeah um it's 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 a little bit it's a little bit gross yeah like that's that's awful yeah uh what's more a lot of the 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 wording is very paternalistic in nature and this is not necessarily objected to by uh, the indigenous nations being uh, negotiated with but their understanding of what exactly this is going to mean for the relationship moving forward Mm -hmm. is not understood in the same way Mm -hmm. so it's very much talking about, uh, you know, the queen mother and it's talking about the indigenous people as being her children. And on the indigenous side, they're, th- they're, they're taking all of this language to mean a level of benevolent protection. Yeah. Like a parent for their child. Whereas on the British side, what they're doing is they're, they're taking agreement to these terms as being agreement to become wards of the state. That's so manipulative. So literally childlike. So uh, yeah. lacking lacking the type of rights that minors lack yeah. under under uh, standard Canadian law. And so they're using all of these treaties as justification to put restrictions on uh, all sorts of things. You know, for example, not allowing uh, alcohol onto onto reservation uh, onto reserves or uh, removing the right to vote, like we talked about mm-hmm. earlier. There, there's all of this stuff that goes into it that these nations didn't realize that's what they were agreeing to when they wrote these yeah that's horrible a lot of work has been done on these agreements uh since on a on a legal level and for the most part it's it's really hard to legally enforce uh, a number of these treaties at this point uh, mm-hmm. or, or certain parts of these treaties because of the coercive nature of of the wording yeah there's there's other really important uh mismatches here for example what is what is being negotiated here yeah in terms of land use because at, at the risk of, of speaking in generalities, which is, is a, a really common pitfall when talking about indigenous history, a lot of the bands that are being negotiated with under the treaty system don't have the same sort of concept of land ownership as uh, the Europeans did. Mm-hmm. It's not as though they thought that, you know, no one can own anything in some of the really ad absurdium concepts that uh, or misconceptions that exist today. But you know, it, it, it's much more of a, a sort of common ownership of the land. It's more of a stewardship relationship with physical land rather than fencing it off and calling it mine. Yeah. What is generally believed to be to be uh, agreed to here is a sharing of the land. Mm-hmm. So both indigenous peoples and Canadian uh, settler peoples will be able to use the land together. Right. What the Canadian government is taking all of this to mean is that the indigenous peoples are handing over sovereignty of these lands to the government of Canada. Right. Which, again, these mismatches are causing massive problems here. The uh, the treaties result in... Let, let's talk about some of the specifics. Each, each treaty is a little bit different, but mm-hmm. generally the way that it works is that the indigenous nations agree to allow Canadians to settle the land and to allow Canadian law to apply to those settlers in exchange for a few things. 
the government of Canada is going to pr provide land reserves for these indigenous peoples, which means places that these settlers are not allowed to settle. Right. The government will provide monetary compensation. Keep in mind, these are these are nations that are in uh, massive trouble due to the collapse of the buffalo hunt, yeah. uh, diseases, etc. that we talked about last time. There are promises of peace and protection, so no more military action against them. Uh, there will be military protection. There will be uh, protection from uh, settlers. Mm -hmm. And usually the government would also provide things like farming tools, uh, a guarantee of providing education on the reserves for uh, Indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. uh, in some of them, there's what's known as a medicine chest clause. And the medicine chest clause is actually a really useful uh, example of how the government is going to get around a lot of these obligations, mm -hmm. because the understanding a medicine chest is literally just a box full of medicines. Okay. And it's the sort of thing that you'd have in any trading post in Rupert's land. Uh, it would be just really like common, a first aid kit, kind of a little more advanced than that. But essentially, yeah, you're not mm -hmm. going to you're not going to find all the things you would have in a, in a hospital, for example. But, mm -hmm. you know, there's going to be some whiskey and, uh, and opium in there to, to help out if there's a you know, an injury or something like that. Right. The phrasing of the medicine kit, uh, the medicine chest clauses is usually done in such a way that it sounds like the government has an obligation to provide health care for these people. Yeah. The government takes this clause to mean literally we need to leave a box full of medicine. Okay. And that's the sort of thing that we're looking at here. Yeah. It's not the same thing. No. And a lot of the, the challenges to these uh, treaties moving forward are going to be on those grounds. What does a medicine chest clause mean? What yeah, is the like they're not really clearly here? defined. No. So the first seven treaties of the number of treaties are negotiated between 1871 and 1877. Then they're they're all about securing land rights to the West. Treaties eight through eleven, that's the the rest of them, are negotiated later. They'll be 1899 to 1922. Mm -hmm. Those are all about securing natural resources. This is, uh oh, we found out there's gold in the Yukon. Better right. find out how we can get it. <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, there's natural gas up here. Let's deal with it. All of that stuff. So that's the treaties. And in general, the treaties, as flawed as they are, are not the main source of uh, the issues between Indigenous peoples and the government of Canada. Yeah. The real issue comes in 1876 when a piece of legislation that actually still exists to this day with amendments is created. It's known as the Indian Act. Oh, yeah. yeah. It is still called the Indian Act today. Mm -hmm. And the Indian Act is not an agreement between the government of Canada and Indigenous peoples. The Indian Act is a piece of legislation that defines how the Canadian government interacts with Indigenous people and how it executes its responsibilities as laid out by the treaty system. So this is very one-sided. This is very unilateral. They have all of a sudden forgotten all of those le lessons from less than a decade before. Mm -hmm. um, it, it does two main things. It, it defines how the, the government is going to interact with them, like what its obligations are. And it defines, and this is the really important part, who is and is not an Indian. Ah, okay. And there are, you, you would think that would be a simple thing. Um, you'd think. You'd think so. Um, but keep in mind, the Métis didn't actually negotiate status as indigenous with the federal government. Yeah. So the Métis are not actually considered status Indians in Canada. Like to this day? To this day. Huh. What's more, there will never be any uh, negotiation with Inuit because there was never really enough of them in enough important places for the government to feel like there was a, a need or, or a danger of them pushing back if they just sort of took that land. Mm -hmm. So Inuit are also not status Indians. Oh, good. And anyone uh, or anyone who was previously a status Indian can lose their... Uh, their status and become a non-status Indian, at which point they're no longer entitled to any of the benefits that are promised to Indigenous people under these treaties. I was going to say, so then they'd have to like return the land and or money. 
Yes. And everything. Okay. They're not allowed to live on reserve. They're not allowed uh, any of the grants given by the government. They are no longer considered Indians. Where itself. are they supposed to go? Like, uh, As far as the government of Canada is concerned, they are now Canadians with no special status. Okay. The way that the Indian Act is set up, to this day, honestly, is is in terms of the definition of who is and is not status Indian, is designed uh, explicitly to eliminate status Indians, mm-hmm. or, or rather the status part of that. Mm-hmm. And I know that uh, at least some Canadians listening will go like, oh, hang on, that doesn't sound... You know, that's, that sounds a little strong. Let's ask, I don't know, our first Prime Minister, John A. Macdonald, what the purpose <laughs> of the Indian Act is. Mm-hmm. And I quote, the great aim of our legislation has been to do away with the tribal system and assimilate the Indian people in all respects with the other inhabitants of the Dominion as speedily as they are fit to change. So those intentions are pretty clear. <laughs> and people wonder why we don't want statues up. Yeah. Um, the way that the the way that um, it worked uh, when it when it first started was basically you need to be registered with a an Indian tribe um, and, and have documentation of that. Mm-hmm. If your father is a status Indian, then you retain status. If you're a woman and you have a child whose father is not a status Indian, uh, or you can't prove is a status Indian, Mm -hmm. then your child will no longer have status. I see. What's more, your status flows only from your father's side. So if your parents are from two different tribes, you only get status in the tribe that your father belongs to. That was going to be my next question too. Like if it was strictly paternal. Yes. Yeah. Which is a real problem for a lot of these societies because a lot of them uh, work on a maternalistic uh, uh, lineage in terms of which tribes you belong to. Yeah. And again, not all of them. We want to be careful about generalizations, but there's a a real imposition of European values uh, as a whole through Mm -hmm. the, through the Indian act, because it's not just this, you know, paternalistic society that's imposed through all of this, which by the way is incredibly unfair. It's been, uh, it's been uh, redone so that uh, both genders equally can lose status in the same ways. Yay. Hey, um, you know, now it depends on, uh, you know, is are, are both your parents uh, status Indians? And if not, okay, so how, how does it work now? If both your parents are status Indians, a status Indian has a 6-1, six, uh, six bracket one designation. Okay. If both of your parents are 6-1, then you're also 6-1. Okay. If one of your parents is 6-1 and another is not status, then you become 6-2. If you're 6-2 okay. and you marry a non-Indian, your children will lose status. I see. If you're 6-2 and you marry a 6-1, your children will be 6-1. Like it's 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 designed specifically to restrict who you can have children with, yeah. um, based on whether or not you're okay with your children losing status, which is that's kind terrible. Of all that's really left from some of these these traditions is these uh, payments that your people are owed, quote, as long as the sun walks, yeah, um, which is being taken away from you. Yeah, there's other uh, restrictions that are being put on over the years, imposing elected style government governance on all bands, whether or not they were uh, democratic to begin with, which a lot of them aren't. So now you have two separate governments running in parallel, hereditary chiefs and uh, this elected band. But if you don't have the elected band, you don't get any of the uh, any of the uh, uh, entitlements that you uh, that you're owed Mm -hmm. forced European style housing. There's no personal private ownership on reserves. All of these houses belong to the government. So you have to apply to live in a house. That's so awful. Yes. Imposing English names. A lot of these people are being given last names when they've never had them before for purposes of being registered with the government. You know, the the government did stuff like this to immigrants around this time too, but you know, they're they're not they're not forcing new names on any like my 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 family was arriving in in canada around this time my last name was spelled completely differently Mm -hmm. the census guy came around and changed it to whatever he wanted but we could move wherever we wanted and we kept our name essentially the same yeah it's it's pretty different you start with a z um (laughs) yeah it's weird but 
you know, you don't have people coming around and just giving people all new names first and last, which is what was happening here. Mm -hmm. They restricted civil participation. So status Indians couldn't vote until the 1960s. Uh, you could, but you had to renounce your status and then you were no longer given any of these entitlements. Yeah. Um, uh, limited mobility. You couldn't leave the reserve without a pass from the Indian agent, which is unconstitutional, but nobody really knew how to fight it. Restrictions on alcohol, because there's this uh, idea that somehow Native people are unable to uh, handle alcohol. And really, uh, alcohol uh, alcohol problems in those communities goes a lot more back to you know, economic inequality than anything, which is being mm -hmm. caused by these systems. Yeah. There's limits on who you can sell your produce to, yeah. um, which limited uh, economic advancement. There's limits on which professions you can take up. You couldn't become a doctor or a lawyer without losing your status. Yeah. There's like a lot of implied ultimatums, like based on your status, if you want to keep your status. None of which is actually in the treaties that were signed. Yeah. And so indigenous people are looking at this and going, okay, well, we have a treaty with the queen and you're yeah. breaking it. Yeah. You're not holding up your, your treaty. Yeah. There's a there's a really common uh, thread when you look at what indigenous people today are saying about the relationship between them and Canada, which is that we're all treaty people. Mm -hmm. We all have a treaty with each other. And it's the uh, responsibility of Canadian people to both learn their treaty obligations and to uphold them wherever they can. Yeah. And to try and force the government to uh, become accountable to these treaties because they haven't been since the start. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, education clauses that are put in here. The ultimate result of this is the residential school uh, system, which we don't have to spend a lot of time on. It's an incredibly depressing subject. But essentially, instead of putting um, schools on the reserves, they decided that if the schools were on the reserves, uh, it was too easy for these people to keep their language and culture. And so the best way to, well, in the words of the government at the time, kill the Indian and the child was to take these children, remove them hundreds, sometimes thousands of kilometers away from their homes, mm -hmm. put them in these boarding schools that were usually run by religious orders where they were, uh, you know, their hair was cut. They were unallowed. They, they were they were unable to speak their traditional languages. Mm -hmm. You know, again, I, I look at my family, my grandfather, you know, we had we had been here 70, 80 years mm -hmm. growing up. Uh, he, he didn't speak English until he entered primary school. They could yeah. speak, you know, they could speak uh, Polish all they wanted. Yeah. Never a problem. But uh, if you're indigenous, no, you're shipped off and you're you're uh, beaten every time you're you're uh, you speak uh, uh, your traditional language. Yeah. Any uh, traditional religious beliefs not allowed to practice those. There are laws put in place against the practice of indigenous religions. It's the what's known as the potlatch ban. Mm -hmm. Um it's sickening. It's it's absolutely horrible, and and it it's it's been described very recently by our own government as cultural genocide. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it's an accurate uh, assessment of what happens here, and and finally, there's the the creation of the Northwest Mounted Police, which becomes the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. The, you know, the Mounties, the, mm -hmm. the fun guys on the, you know, with the red the the, the red outfits uh, riding around the on horses. horses. Those are put in place essentially to keep these native people in line. The official party line here is that there are some whiskey smugglers coming up from the United States that they're, you know, they're trying to keep uh, a, a lid on. But it's partially that. It's partially to enforce the uh, the Indian Act. Yeah. It's a big part of their their creation. So let's get back to our friend, Luriel, <laughs> after all of this, because you, you do need to know all of this before we, we get back to him, uh, because it's it's really important to understand what happened in between the, you know, the, the Red River Rebellion and uh, this next one, which is properly called the Northwest Rebellion. The Métis started moving out of uh, Manitoba as uh, English settlers moved in because there was no land for them. Remember, it wasn't put in place. Mm -hmm. So they moved further west into the Northwest Territories and what into what is now Saskatchewan. And that was a tricky spot because they didn't technically have title to the land, but neither did any of the other settlers that are settling there. And, you know, it's sort of a up in the air sort of thing. Mm hmm. Now, the Métis were trying to work with indigenous people in the area, but generally, European Canadians weren't trying to do so. 
1883, Métis residents in a place called uh, St. Louis, Northwest Territories, and like I said, in, in future Saskatchewan, discover once again surveyors in their town right. carving the whole thing up, ignoring what's already there. They found out that the uh, their entire property had been sold, their entire town had been sold by the Canadian government to a an expansion firm. There, there were these companies that all they did was sell sort of new homestead packages to uh, immigrants mm-hmm. and they found out that their stuff had all been sold oh no and so they reached out to louis riel to return uh riel had been in exile since the red river rebellion yeah he traveled around the united states a little bit ended up in upstate new york uh there was sort of a, a religious colony it was a not quite an order it's not like a he, he didn't become a monk or anything like that but yeah. it was one of these sort of uh, communal religious uh living centers that you find once in a while and a really interesting thing comes at this point in time where Riel has been stewing over what happened in, in the Red River uh, colony for a long time. And he's become so steeped in, you know, his his in, in this religious practice because he's living it every single day. Yeah. He begins developing this sense that he had been divinely appointed as a leader for the Métis. Okay. Um, he starts writing these wild religious tracts. He starts uh, some of it like verging on heretical. Uh, he's spending and and. It's one of those things where, like, some people have speculated now that he may have suffered from narcissism. Mm-hmm. Now, there's the usual caveats there on trying to diagnose historical figures. Yeah, uh, for sure. Mental illness is a product of a great many things, some of which is the society that you live in. And it's not always fair to put that on somebody, but yeah, it, it's a, it's not an unuseful framework for the type of behavior he began exhibiting. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very convinced that he was a religious leader at some point. Okay. Um, to the point where he started like disrupting ser- uh, services and things like that. The priests that he uh, knew and worked with were trying to like kind of rein him in a little yeah. bit. Like, yeah, come on, Louis, it's not. To the point where he started, yeah, he started uh, disrupting services and they had no choice basically but to commit him to an asylum under an assumed really? name. Yeah. So he spent some time in, a, in an insane asylum in, in upstate New York. Yeah. They just kind of didn't know what else to do with him. Yeah. Uh, he's released in 1876 and returns to St. Paul where he had spent some time before remember in in modern day minnesota uh and he seems to have sort of evened out at that point being away from the religious colony mellowed out a bit (laughs) helped out he he actually settled down he started a a family he moved west before he started this family in 1882 and he ended up having three children and became involved in politics briefly became a a republican politician before they realized that hey he's not actually a, a a U.S. citizen. <laughs> so he naturalized in 1883, became a U.S. citizen. Okay. Um, and by 1884, when all of this stuff is going down with the Métis up in Saskatchewan, uh, he's just teaching school in Montana. Hmm. Uh, he's got a pretty quiet life. He's, you know, quietly active in his local church, but seems to be getting along with everybody, all of that. Yeah. But then he gets this call from a group of Métis who say, Louis, we need your help. We need you to lead us against the Canadian government. It's happening. He gets the call, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, he... he he heads off. <laughs> he heads off back to Canada. Uh, he's willing to, um, to to kind of risk it. By the way, Manitoba has never lost its love for Riel throughout this entire ordeal. They actually uh, elected him to um, the federal government. He, they elected him as a, as a member of parliament, mm-hmm. uh, I think, four times while <laughs> he was in in exile. He obviously never yeah. sat for it because, you know, other Métis leaders had been caught and executed for the, the murder of, or uh, the, the, the execution of Scott. Mm-hmm. And he was quite worried about the same thing. He had sort of gotten a guarantee that he'd be safe if he stayed in exile for five years. Yeah. But he wasn't sure how strong that was. Yeah. Wasn't exactly like signed and sealed. <laughs> but this was like, this was it. He got the call. 
Soriel heads up to St. Louis in uh, Saskatchewan and they explain what's going on. This starts out as, you know, a protest of this whole land survey and the land purchase, right? Right. And Riel goes, okay, that's great. Well, good news. I'm divinely appointed to be here for you. <laughs> and they kind of go, oh, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, we're going to lead a Métis uprising against the country of Canada and we're going to take our land back and God sent me to be here. Right on. And... What what happens? Praise be. Yeah. What what happens here is is it shifts very quickly from like this this very specific localized protest to an attempt at sort of a a much wider pushback against what's happened with the the treaty system and the the sort of uh, the fact that the government has ignored the treaties that they've put in place. Yeah. So there's there's a there's an attempt to coordinate with the local uh, Nehia leaders that fails because they're kind of like, well, we have different aims. Like we didn't want you guys settling here in the first place. Like we don't want to help yeah, you exactly. protest it. We didn't want anybody here. So <laughs> you know, please, by, by all means. They're also upset because, you know, the aim is just to get this very like specific thing back. It's not about the treaties that they're coming to realize are, are really harmful to them. This is all in uh, Treaty 6 land. Mm -hmm. Riel basically goes, okay, well, that's fine. But he starts increasing these attempts to make his leadership a religious issue. And, uh, you know, he, at first he's got support of the church, but then they realize that he's got some pretty out there beliefs and yeah. he starts shedding supporters, especially uh, English Métis supporters, mm -hmm. who are kind of like, well, this is, you know, we're, we're not Catholic and this is kind of, yeah. this is a bit much for us. And and even some some uh, French Métis, French-speaking Métis supporters who are going, I just wanted my land. Like I didn't, I wasn't looking to join a cult here. Yeah. But what results is like this much smaller, but much more um, fervent band of supporters who are like, yes, I am here for this. They get themselves armed. They provide, or they declare a provisional government of Saskatchewan. So Riel's hitting all his like greatest hits here, right? Yeah. <laughs> starts, starts trying to open negotiations, cuts telegraph lines, mm. uh, running to some of the local forts because he hears that the Northwest Mounted Police are starting to concentrate forces that might be coming after him. Mm. All of this is like pretty textbook from what he did in the Red River Rebellion. Yeah. The difference between then and now is the Canada Pacific Railroad. Last time it took months for any government military forces to get from Ontario uh, to yeah. Manitoba. It takes uh, a couple of weeks for it to happen this time. Mm-hmm. The numbers that we're talking about in this uprising are also much bigger. The Red River Rebellion had been, you know, we're talking about uh, dozens to hundreds in most cases. It was pretty small. Mm -hmm. um, as many as 5,000 Canadian troops end, end up in this area to put down this rebellion. However, before they get there, the Métis take on uh, the Northwest Mounted Police uh, outside of Duck Lake. It's, it's known as the Battle of Duck Lake in March mm -hmm. of 1885. And about 90 or so... Northwest Mounted Police are defeated by 200 to 250 Métis. And it's seen as this massive, like, okay, well, this could be a thing. Yeah. And this victory leads to this grassroots uprising of uh, Indigenous nations who are like, well, okay, we might not have exactly the same aims, but maybe there's something here that we can work together on. Mm -hmm. So you get uh, Nehia leaders, uh, one of the main ones being Big Bear, jumping on board with this cause. So the numbers go up quite a bit. There's a battle uh, with one of the initial forces coming from, from Ontario of about 900 Northwest Mounted Police uh, uh, reservists against only 200 or so Métis and Indigenous uh, troops that the Métis end up winning. 
and there's this massive momentum. It gets yeah. very scary for the uh, for the uh, the federal government at, yeah. at a certain point. <laughs> I bet. And these indigenous uh, uh, nations that are fighting alongside again, it stopped being about this one little colony. It becomes about we had an agreement. Yep. You're not keeping it you know, why can't we leave our reserves? Why aren't, why aren't we allowed to purchase ammunition? We can't hunt without guns, Mm -hmm. but the government had restricted the sale of ammunition to indigenous people, partially because of a fear of exactly this type of uprising. Like what's happening. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, it's all these little things that are coming to a head and, and, you know, why, why are we able to practice our traditional way of life? This is, uh, you know, right in the, in around the time where the last of the Buffalo hunts are happening. Mm -hmm. There's uh, significant like societal unrest. There's all of these things coming to a head and this flashpoint of Riel, uh, leading this small band of Métis against the Northwest Mounted Police uh, blows up into this much bigger thing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it's it's fairly short-lived. There's a number of Indigenous victories, but once those 5,000 troops get into the area, it's more or less over fairly quickly, in about two two to three months. Riel is captured by uh, Northwest Mounted Police forces on May 15th. Um, mm-hmm. This is where, like, do, do you know the name Sam Steele? I do, but... He's, like, an early, like, Mountie, basically. Okay. And he's really held up as, like, this hero of, like, the Canadian frontier. He's... He is... He is reveling in this ability this this uh, opportunity to go uh to battle against these uh Nehian nations right. um big bear's forces are are defeated uh june 3rd 1885 which results in the capture of big bear he's he's held uh he isn't actually executed but he's he's held for so long that they end up not sentencing him and releasing him because he's so old that they don't think he's going to be able to do anything anymore <laughs> like it's 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 really the last sort of push against the Canadian government by indigenous peoples uh, in response to these treaties. Yeah. Um, afterwards, there isn't a lot of uh, political or military willpower. And both the government through legislation and the Northwest Mountain Police through uh, application of force are going to basically make sure that this is not able to happen again. There's a bunch of uh, laws that go in place into the, in the 1880s and 1890s restricting organization, anything over, I believe, three uh, indigenous people is is required to have some sort of uh, licensing. Wow. Um, it's 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 authoritarian tactics. This is yeah. very like, yeah, yeah. It's it's something else. Riel is brought to trial and charged with treason. Mm-hmm. There's a question of whether to hold the trial in Winnipeg, which has now been incorporated as a city, so in in Manitoba, mm-hmm. um, which is likely going to be friendly to him, or to hold the trial in Regina, uh, mm-hmm. which is in Saskatchewan, uh, which won't be friendly to him. Mm-hmm. And the reason there's a question here is that technically the courts in Winnipeg have jurisdiction over all of the Northwest Territories. Mm-hmm. So that should be where the trial happens. Yeah. But the government basically makes an exception to allow the courts in Regina, where Saskatchewan has not yet been incorporated. They basically give them the, the authority to try this case. Okay. Basically, under, under the argument of, well, the crimes happened in Saskatchewan or in Northwest Territories, I should say, uh, they should be tried in the Northwest Territories, mm-hmm. which is some kind of... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. His lawyer attempts an insanity plea, mm-hmm. which Riel isn't terribly happy with. But yeah, um, you know, basically this guy went, well, this guy's so crazy, like leaving him alive is punishment enough. Was basically <laughs> his defense. Right. Riel, for his part, gives a number of speeches just impassionately explaining why he did what he did. Some of it very sound. Uh, honestly, it was it was relatively put together considering uh, the reports of uh megalomania yeah. in his later life but the uh the jury of six scottish and english canadians uh ended up finding him guilty mm-hmm. they did recommend mercy they felt that uh they you know he should he should get off with a, a prison term but the uh the judge ended up sentencing him to death despite that recommendation mm-hmm. one of the jurors on the trial was later asked about this 
this sentencing and his his, his uh, impression was quote we tried real for treason and he was hanged for the murder of Scott the idea being that the government of Canada has had it out for yeah for Riel since the Red River Rebellion yeah it was unacceptable to them that he uh, managed to stand up to them and win mm-hmm. and they've been fo- uh, fixated on this one thing for so long yeah this was incredibly unpopular in French Canada it's interesting because you and I have been talking about this very much through an indigenous lens and there's there's a whole other side to this story that is I, I think a little bit better known and a little bit less important to discuss here, which is that Quebec saw Riel as one of their own because he was French speaking. They saw a lot of this conflict as being an attempt by English speaking Canada to roll over French speaking uh, Roman Catholics in the rest of Canada, because that's going to be uh, an ongoing theme of Canadian history for forever. Um, Yeah. For them, it's like English versus French. Right. And and what Riel had done in the creation of Manitoba was create another bastion for the French language outside of Quebec, which was the only place it was legislated to exist within, you know, at the time of Confederation. Mm -hmm. And so it was seen as a as a massive injustice. It was seen as a, an overreach of the federal government. It was seen as um, an attempt at uh, Anglo superiority in Canada. Yeah, it was incredibly unpopular. There were multiple requests for appeals, but at this level, because it had been considered like a federal trial, mm-hmm. um, the only place that it could be appealed to was the Privy Council. So the you know in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to do that, it had to be approved by the federal government. Johnny McDonald blocked this. Mm-hmm. Uh, his his actual quote about it was, "He shall die, though every dog in Quebec bark in his favor." <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Okay. He had it out for Riel, absolutely. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, Louis Riel was hanged on the sixteenth of November, eighteen eighty-five. So we kind of started this whole thing off uh, with a question, which was. Should the government of Canada have executed Louis Riel? Do they have the right to? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons it's an enduring uh, uh, question is there isn't a great answer for that. Yeah. Now, the Red River Rebellion, I think there's a kind of a clear cut issue there yeah. in that the government of Canada didn't have jurisdiction in that place when the crime that they accused him of happened. Mm hmm. Would that have bothered the government of Canada at the time? Probably not. But, you know, in in hindsight, that makes a lot of sense. But what about the second one? He led an armed uprising against government forces in what had been negotiated to be Canadian territory. Yeah. However, those negotiations were done in bad faith and were actively being uh, violated at the time of the uprising. Yeah, exactly. More people were killed in this, in this, uh, uh, the the Northwest Rebellion, Mm -hmm. Um, a few dozen on each side. And, you know, Riel very openly uh, advocated for violence and agitation in this whole thing. Yeah. Is that treason? Is that worth the death penalty? Was there other political motivation behind it? Yeah. It's a difficult question. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of it depends on, I think, on your stance on the validity of the numbered treaties, which is a really complicated issue to this day. Yeah. Yeah, there's no like real clear cut answer. No, there to isn't. Riel is, is is one of the most complicated figures in Canada Canadian history, um, and one of the most discussed, at least at higher levels, as we talked about. Mm-hmm. And I think in the same way that some of the issues in Quebec history sort of cut to the heart of Canadian identity and Canadian history, this is one of those flashpoints where. I, I think the controversy and the popularity comes down to where Canadians see 
or what Canadians think of Canada and its relationship yeah. to Indigenous peoples. Yeah. It, it's, it's not an easy one to answer. I, I'm sure if I don't give my specific opinion, people will be asking for me. No, I, I don't think it was right. I think that when you measure out all the sides on this whole thing, uh, the way that Canada has has treated its Indigenous peoples is is uh, absolutely outrageous. And yep. um, the idea that they would uh, be upset about it enough to, to take arms is not a surprising thing. No one should be surprised by that. No, not at all. And yeah, I, I, I don't know what else to necessarily say about that beyond... Well, there, there were a couple of other things I wanted to add, uh, a little bit outside of the topic, though. Um, I, I think, you know, and, and this is more for, for Canadian listeners, listeners specifically, but really for any nation that has uh, an Indigenous population. And before you say no, that you don't, there's a lot more than you would necessarily think. I yeah. mean, uh, Finland has a has an Indigenous population. Uh, Japan has an Indigenous yeah. population. Australia, New Zealand. Um, th- there's, there's a lot of places that, you know, for better or for worse have uh, very complex relationships with the people who uh, are still alive today that were here first. Yep. And I, I think I, in general, I'm not one of those like never trust anything the government says types. But I think when it comes to, you know, the validity of those government sovereignty, they sometimes bend the rules pretty hard past the breaking point. Yeah. And uh, I, I think as a, as a Canadian, it's it's been an eye opener to learn about some of this stuff and realize just how far we've been willing to go to keep control of those areas. So yeah. I, I would encourage anyone in, in, a com- in a country that has an indigenous population to try and learn a little bit about it on your own, because um, you probably won't get the full story in school. It's not really in uh, the interests of the yeah. you know the Ministry of Education to give you the full story. I know I didn't get it. No, I, I agree. I like I knew this episode, this topic was going to be really eye opening for me, but it's it's upsetting hmm. to know that there's all this history that we're not being taught in school and that a lot of this is like brand new information to me. And a lot of this is going to come across as like extremely political to a lot of Canadians, which is kind of scary. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I do want to stress that like nothing I've said here is, well, I mean, I've injected lots of opinions, but the the, the facts are, are very clear and very easily accessible. This all, yeah. this all happened. This isn't a, you know, this isn't a, a you know, I've, I've done my best not to, to slant this, uh, this topic any more than, I would any other one, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that I think better understanding might really have an, ex- uh, uh, an effect on our relationship with these people. And yeah. uh, I, I think it's true. We are all, you know, we, we do have an, a responsibility to figure out what it is that we've agreed to, yeah, um, for sure. to live in this place yeah, and, uh, to try and, and follow through on those. So, um, the only way to do that is to, is to educate yourself. You're not going to get it anywhere else. No. Um, if you don't know where to start, I mean, there's there's always places. There's uh, a massive community of uh, Indigenous people uh, online. Twitter is amazing for this that are doing so much uh, heavy lifting in terms of education, yeah. uh, often for free, just because uh, just because they know that that's the only way that the message gets out. Yeah. Um, you know, find them, read their stuff. You don't have to agree with everything, but listen. You know, that's that's the place that this stuff starts. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, shout out, I guess, to everybody who said that I never say anything bad about anyone but the U.S. Um, <laughs> this uh, this episode was not exactly the most Canada friendly, even from a no, Canadian. No, it's extremely shameful. Um, you know, I, I think <laughs> and, and, you know, let me be clear, I, I, I love living here. Canada is amazing, but that doesn't mean we don't have work to do. So, no, absolutely. Um, you know, sometimes criticism of, of things that you uh, love is the is the best way to uh, make them better. Yeah, I agree. I think it's important to maintain kind of a a balanced perspective of 
you know, the history of the place that you're, you're mm-hmm. raised in and, and you live in yep. because not doing so can lead to dangerous outcomes for sure. And, and this stuff all has ramifications right up to today. We, yep. we keep the 20 year rule, but I guarantee you, you go back in the last week of news stories, uh, you'll find multiple, multiple stories where this topic will, uh, probably uh, uh, add some insight into what exactly is happening there. Yeah. Also, I think this is going to be releasing very close, if not on uh, February 18th, which in Manitoba is Louis Riel Day, where they ah. celebrate the founding of their province and uh, uh, by Louis Riel. So, um, you know, as much as in Ottawa, or in Ontario, where we grew up, uh, I always kind of got the impression that he was kind of vilified to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. That's not true all over Canada. He's He's got a, a complicated... Um, uh, reputation even to this day. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I can definitely understand why now. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, more than, more than any other, uh, topic that we've done, uh, I am definitely not an expert on this stuff. I'm learning more every single day. Uh, I, I really encourage people to learn a little bit more on their own, uh, listen to someone who is actually indigenous. They've lived that experience and they, they know a whole lot more than I do. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think that's all I wanted to say on that. I know it's yeah. more extra at the end than, than usual, but this is a, little bit different topic than usual so yeah uh, for sure well thank you for um for doing the research on this i it was really enlightening for me and yeah I, I'm, I'm glad you could come on and i'm glad you picked the topic yeah. uh it wasn't the easiest one to put together but yeah for obvious reasons, but, <laughs> but i'm glad we did it i I'm, really appreciate it I'm, I'm glad we put that out there so yeah um yeah thank you very much thank you if the confederation of canada marks the end of the canadian government's treatment of indigenous nations as sovereign The Red River Rebellion and Northwest Rebellion marked the last time those nations were able to muster the military force to defend that sovereignty. Already stifled by dishonored treaties, an unconstitutional Indian Act, and targeted cultural genocide, the rebellions gave the Canadian government the excuse it needed to impose further restrictions on Indigenous peoples that continue to damage those communities to this day. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. (laughs) 